If I'm just to the side and behind, I don't need to see her face. Uh, I can even blow over her from that distance and there's no concern over any fitna, inshallah. She should be with her mahram. The mahram should be taking care of things. If the mahram leaves the room, you leave the room. Simple rule. Uh, the mahram should be taking care of any flinging of arms and things like that uh, anytime she becomes uncovered. If there is no mahram, then one of the older, well-respected sisters who is, uh, shall we say, above suspicion or someone who is you know, of, a, of a good standing, who is well-known maybe, or one of the, the sisters who's involved in da'wah or something like that, you get her to sit with her and you give her clear instruction. Keep her hijab on at all times. If it comes off, just give a signal to the raqi. We will just, you know, in any case, we shouldn't be looking at her anyway. I usually would read with my eyes closed, but in case, and she would just say, just please, can you turn around? And then we would, of course, turn around the other way and she will fix her hijab or whatever she needs to do. And then she will say, okay, you can carry on. So we keep it very strict. You know, at the end of the day, Rukia is supposed to bring you nearer to Allah. And uh, it's not bringing you any nearer to Allah if you are looking at things you shouldn't be looking at and you're touching things you shouldn't be touching. So in important they say, you know, what I need to look at her like the doctor needs to look at the patient. Again, we say this is qiyasun ma'al fariq. This is qiyas analogy, but the two are not the same. The two are not the same. Because the reality is for the majority of Rukia situations, you don't really need to see the face in any real, any real need. Worst case scenario, you can say to the mahram or the sister, tell me if she's making funny facial expressions or something like that. You know, just to, you, you just tell me, give me some indication. There may be instances where you think it's an absolute necessity, but I, I really don't think these are anything more than the, the very rare instances that are you know, so rare you can barely remember any if, even if you think about them. And I really want to emphasize this, that the basic principle should be everything you're doing should be totally above board, sharia-wise. And you know, anytime you, you slip, the problem is if you set your standard and your bar too low, then when you slip, you'll slip really low. You know, at the end of the day, you hope that if you're not looking at the sister, and something from the shaitan causes you to slip, then the worst you're going to see is the back of her head. You know, at the end of the day. And the Prophet ﷺ said, The first one is not held against you, and the second one is held against you. So, you know, you hope that if you slip, and you shouldn't slip, but if you slip, you won't slip any lower than what is still re relatively acceptable in the sharia. Whereas if you sit there looking into her eyes, then if you slip, where are you going to slip to? The fear is you're going to slip to something seriously haram. And bear in mind you are doing ruqya in the presence of the shaitan. Not to say the shaitan isn't always around, but in specific shayateen who are there to cause a problem. Do they feel safe from the plot of Allah? Do you think that you're pious enough and holy enough that the plot of Allah will not touch you? then maybe you know, Allah will not cause the shaitan to overcome you and you will reach out or you will do something haram. Nobody ever, ever should feel safe from the plot of Allah. Nobody should feel that they are safe from the plot of Allah except for the losing people. So really I emphasize again and again and again. If you get into doing ruqya over non-mahrams, it does happen. My sort of majority of cases I see are probably women. Uh, we always bring the mahram. If the mahram is not there, a lot of times 
uh, maybe the mahram refuses to come, maybe the mahram is not there in the first place, then you do your best, you know, you tie your camel, you do your best to make the environment as halal as possible, and you constantly set the bar higher than even than, than, than is needed, you know, as high as you can, so that if you do slip and fall and you make any mistake, inshallah, you won't be, you know, falling into the haram, ta'ala. So the first method was reading alone. The second method, reading and blowing with dry air. Okay, reading and blowing with dry air. So the example of this is to read and then either at the end of the surah or the end of each ayah or as and when you feel the need to blow with air that does not contain any spittle. As an example, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin You can hear from the sound in the microphone. You can see no, no spittle is coming out. There's nothing. Your hand is dry. It's just air that's coming out. That is method number two. Method number three is for some spittle to come out. So in this, you sort of keep your mouth a little bit moist. And when you blow out, there will be some spittle that will come onto your hand. So you will read, for example, and when you do that, you can hear the different sound. You can hear that and you will end up with some spittle uh, that will come onto your, onto your hand. It's not like you're spitting on the person, but there is some spittle there. There is some... It's not a dry blowing of air. There is some moisture that comes out with it. The fourth one, reading into the hands and wiping over the body without blowing. So here there is no blowing whatsoever. Okay? In this one, See, no blowing. And then wiping over the body, the whole body, the place of the pain. Uh, especially if you have a whole body illness where you've got a fever that's on the whole body, you know, and you're feeling hot everywhere. Wipe over the body without blowing. The fifth one, reading and placing the hand on the place of the pain. So here, you have your hand where the pain is. Let's just say I have pain in my shoulder. So I have my hand in the place where the pain is here on my shoulder. And I'm reading, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Qul ahad So I'm reading while my hand is on the place where the pain is. The sixth one, reading and blowing and wiping. So in this case, you're blowing air into your hands after reading and then wiping. Allahu samad lam yalid wa lam yulad wa lam kufuan ahad. You can hear from the sound that there's blowing going into the hands and then maybe if the pain in the shoulder, 
or in the whole body, wiping over the place of the pain. Uh, seven, eight, and nine, I think we've explained uh, reading on, uh, or reading, reciting, spitting on the finger, touching the finger to the earth, and then touching the, the sick person. And we said that there is some uh, disagreement over whether the, this can be done outside of Medina and that an nawawi and Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahumullah, both said it can be done outside of Medina. And the eighth one is salt in water, which is put on the wound while, or on the uh, place of the sting, while reciting over the place. Now in this case, there's not reading on the water. As we understand it, there's no reciting on the water. What is done is that there's salt and water, and I, as I recall, this was for a scorpion sting. The Prophet ﷺ did so. Uh, and uh, he recited the, the al-falaq and al-nas over the place of the sting, and then he brought water with salt in, and he placed it, he put it over the place of the, the place of the sting. Again, for the full details, you can read them in the notes. There's a lot of detail in there about when it was done and why it was done. And the ninth is reading over water. So in this example, take the water, recite, and you blow into the water. Some people might ask, when can we blow? There's no hard and fast rule that it has to be after every ayah or after every surah. Uh, but if you do it after whenever you feel confident, I think if you want to really push it, you do it after every ayah. And it's narrated that this was done with... Uh, the Prophet ﷺ with regard to the magic that was done in Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. And I don't, I, as I recall from the top of my head, the hadith has some weakness in it. But um, at least I mean, there is some indication of blowing with every ayah. Uh, and blowing at the end of the surah was, is narrated authentically from some of the companions. So I think at the end of the day, there's no big deal about when you do it. But I think if you blow at the end of every ayah, uh, it's, quite, it's quite intense. And it's quite hard to sustain over a long period of time. So, you know, you wouldn't really get through Al-Baqarah blowing after, you know, 280-something ayat, blowing after, you know, every, after every ayah. Realistically, you're probably going to blow after every page, every half a page, every now and again. Uh, whereas maybe Al-Fatiha, you can blow with every ayah. At the end of the day, I don't think that there is one particular method that is preferred over another, but one has more emphasis than the other. The other one is a bit more, of a, a bit more sustainable. So that was just really to clarify because uh, some of the sisters didn't see it. So we were going through the full Rukia program. And the one that we didn't cover is the patient must implement the seven-day Rukia program at least once every month, preferably. The patient must implement the seven-day Rukia program at least once every month, preferably twice. Now, the seven-day Rukia program is a program that I took from Sheikh Adil al-Muqbil, Hafidhahullah. And really, I have found it to be incredibly useful. I'll tell you what it is first, and then I'll tell you why it's so useful. Uh, if we open the link, uh, this is the seven-day, I called, I called it a Rukia detox program because it just, it feels like a detox. Yeah, it, it, that's how it, it feels when you do it, and that's how it appears to be when you do it. Uh, as I said here, this is Tarjamatu Al-Ashfiyah li Fadilat al-Sheikh Adil ibn Tahir al-Muqbil hafizahullah ta'ala. This is a program that the Sheikh he calls Al-Ashfiyah. And Al-Ashfiyah is, of course, a plural of Shifa. 
So he calls it the cures. His name for the, 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 uh, the program is the cures. Uh, because it contains all or many of the methods mentioned in the sunnah for receiving a cure, both from prophetic medicine and from the point of view of ruqya. Now, as we've mentioned so far, there are, there are two, and if you wish to say three, elements of, of treating an illness. There is regular medicine, there is ruqya, and the one in the middle, which kind of overlaps the two, is prophetic medicine. So prophetic medicine is usually a real medicine, as in it is a, uh, a drug that works uh, through uh, a chemical process by the grace and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, rather than necessarily a, um, you know, like ruqya, like a, a spiritual cure. But there are also elements of the spiritual cure in there as well. So if you look at honey, for example, the, yes, honey has a, a process by which it works. We understand some of that today in terms of science, how honey works to, to uh, sort of combat uh, illnesses and disease and as an anti, uh, like an anti-bacterial uh, and things like that. But at the same time, the use of honey in Islam is far more than that, is far more comprehensive than that. So what we see is that it, there's an overlap between the, the iman and the spiritual and the iman in the ghaib type of, of treatment and the, also the physical, sort of chemical, biological treatment as well. So the prophetic medicine sits in between. Uh, and the Sheikh basically, uh, as we said here, this program is recommended by the Sheikh for all those people who complain of problems relating to jinn, magic, and the evil eye. The Sheikh said he has used it for many years with a great deal of success, and it is particularly relevant for those who are waiting to see a Raqi or can't get access to one. The Sheikh calls it the collection of cures because it's made up of a number of things that we are told are shifa in the Quran and the Sunnah. Um, I think it's really, really useful for the reason that there is no hands-on ruqya involved, so it's, it's quite easy to do. There's, nothing, there's no need for any ruqya session as such. Uh, it's easy for people to do who don't have access to someone to do ruqya for them. It's very gentle. Uh, it's even more gentle than regular ruqya. So if you feel the person might have a severe reaction and you just want to test them out, and it's a really, really good first step to take just to see where the person is at. I kind of use it like a bit of a litmus test, a bit of a sort of a generic test at the beginning of the ruqya, just to see where the patient is at. If they go crazy with it, then I know, okay, this is where they're at on the spectrum. If they are, you know, no symptoms at all, uh, are they sort of moderate symptoms and the symptoms go away? Uh, it really is a really, really good way of starting off the ruqya program. The Sheikh calls it the collection of cures because it's made up of a number of things we told as Shifa in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now, this is a very important section. I added this recently. A number of people ask, where is the proof for this from the Qur'an and the Sunnah? We say that, inshallah, there is a proof for each of the points mentioned as individual cures. But as for doing them as a whole, this is from the permissible ijtihad of the Sheikh, and it's something that is allowed as evidenced by the following statement of Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala. He said, Seeking a cure with the Noble Qur'an and Siddur and the likes are from permissible medicines and do not fall within the category of innovation. Rather, they fall within the category of medicine. The Prophet ﷺ said, O slaves of Allah, seek a cure and do not seek a cure from the haram. 
and it's authentically reported in Sunan Abi Dawud, the Prophet ﷺ read upon water in a vessel and poured it over a sick person. From this we know that seeking cure, a cure by reading over water and honey and the likes are permissible and there is nothing wrong with them from an Islamic point of view as long as what is read on them is correct and the medicine is permissible to eat or drink. Uh, the reason I put it in there is a lot of people get confused about this and, and I think it's a good, it's a good confusion from an angle in the sense that the people are scared, they don't want to do something wrong. But inshallah, the fact is that each of the individual parts of this program are mentioned in the sunnah. Putting it together into one program isn't. But that is from the point of view of permissible medicines. The Prophet ﷺ said take honey. The Prophet ﷺ said to drink zamzam water. The Prophet ﷺ, for example, said to take black seed. There's no harm in making a program where you take honey and water and black seed together. This is not from the category of innovation. This is from the category of permissible medicine. Each one of them is mentioned in the sunnah. The fact that they are together in a program doesn't make it haram. And I hope that is clearly understood and evidence from the statement of Sheikh bin Baz rahimahullah. As we said, Sheikh bin Baz believes the hadith uh, for reading over water to be authentic in Sunan Abi Dawood. And we said that it seems to me that the rajah is the hadith is da'if. But in any case, uh, the basic principle, there is no issue here about you know, using black seed and honey and water, all of them, and olive oil, all of them together. At the end of the day, uh, you know, if we look at this, the Prophet ﷺ used all of those things. The fact that you put them all together into a single program, there is nothing haram about this, inshallah, whatsoever. Uh, however, it does give us an important benefit, which is that as long as the program is not as a whole mentioned in the sunnah, it is not necessary for every single part to be carried out without any change. Do we understand that, inshallah? Is that clear? So because, yes, the individual things are mentioned in the sunnah, but the Prophet ﷺ did not say how much black seed to take, and he did not say how many spoons of honey, and he did not say how much olive oil. So the fact that we've made a program here, if we know that the, the dosage and the general idea is not mentioned in the sunnah, then the fa'idah, the benefit we get is we can leave parts of it out if we have a need to leave it out. Because it's not an ibadah that you have to follow the, every, you know, the dosage, one spoon of honey and not two. You know, and uh, it must be honey and not without honey. And the black seed must be from this place and not from that place. We have some flexibility because we know that the Prophet ﷺ gave a general indication to use them. He didn't give a specific indication of how to use them. So for example, if a diabetic cannot eat honey, they can miss it out. And although we would recommend doing the program exactly as mentioned, we hope that there is no harm in missing out the honey if someone has a medical reason why they can't have, for example, honey. Two most commonly asked questions that we get asked when we post the article. Can a lady do this program when she's menstruating? Um, I think that depends on her need. If she is able to delay the program until after menstruation, then perhaps this is better. However, she can't wait. There's no specific reason to prevent her from doing so, and she should avoid the areas where there is menstrual blood. Isn't it forbidden to use rukia water in the bath? We get this very, very common. Uh, I believe... Um, I'll not quote who I think it's from because in case I misquote them, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote one of the shuk. But one, one of the, the very famous uh, brothers who is very, very well known for Rukia and has written uh, a number of books on the topic, uh, in one of his books he said that it is forbidden to use Rukia water in the bath because the water falls down the, the plug hole. 
the answer to this is that this is the opinion of some of the students of knowledge. We asked this uh, question to the Sheikh and he replied, there is no evidence for this prohibition. If Ruqya water had the same ruling as the Quran, it would not be permissible to drink it, nor to put it on the body, nor to bathe with it. And this is not a, a valid qiyas, because they're making qiyas between Quran itself and Ruqya water. So they say, just like you can't put the Quran down the drain, you can't put Ruqya water down the drain. We say this is not the same, because if this is true, you can't, you can't eat the Quran either. And you can't drink the Quran. And you can't plaster the Quran all over your body. And you can't, you know, bathe in the Quran. And you can't, uh, you know, uh, do all of these things. And therefore, there is no comparison between Ruqya water and Quran. Ruqya water is one thing, and it's not, it doesn't have the ruling of the Mus'haf. Rather, more than that, if it had the ruling of the Mus'haf, it would not be permissible to take it into the bathroom in the first place. It would not be permissible for you to even take it into the bathroom. Therefore, me personally, I don't see any reason or any evidence. And I asked this question to Sheikh Adil, and he replied that there is no dalil for this. Uh, and our opinion is that there is no evidence for it. However, uh, those who take the opinion that it's not allowed, I believe what they do is they bathe in a, a, a tub outside of the bathroom. They bathe in a tub outside of the bathroom. And then they throw the water outside in the flowers or the plants or something like that. But I think this is tekalluf. I don't think there's any need for this, and I don't think there's any delil for it either. Um, bear in mind that in this article, there are some things I have added myself. They are in between curly braces. What's in between curly braces is from me. The rest is from the sheikh. Before beginning, humble yourself before Allah. Make dua at the times when your dua is accepted, like the time between the adhan and the iqama, the last third of the night between asr and maghrib on a Friday, and so on. You will need to have the following things ready. Now, the way the seven-day program works is that you prepare the entire program at the beginning of the week, and then all you do for the whole week is use the ingredients. So there's no need for any rukya as such. There's no need for the patient to prepare their own program. It can be prepared by a family member, a friend, or anyone else, inshallah. There's no need for you to, for example, if the rukya patient can't read anything, this is a very good method because it doesn't require them to actually do any reading. Uh, the first thing you're going to need is some water. And I personally estimate that ideally you would get three to five liters per person who is doing the program. I do it for my kids. If I feel my kids have got a little bit of evil eye or they're not sleeping well, they're getting nightmares, we do this program for them. It's, we do it for you know, uh, non-Muslims, a lot of, lot of other things. But you're going to need roughly three to five liters per person. You don't need that much. I've done it with, you know, I've done it with as little as half a liter, to be honest. But it's very, to do it easily and comfortably, you're going to need three to five liters. And ideally, zamzam, because it is a food that satisfies and a cure from sickness. And the water of zamzam is for whatever it is drunk for. If zamzam is not available, uh, the sheikh, he said to use rain water, because Allah said, we have sent down blessed rain from the sky. And because the Prophet ﷺ used to uncover a part of his garment when it rained and he would say it has just come from, his, from its Lord. Uh, reality is collecting rainwater I don't recommend and I've written this in bold. Please do not delay the program waiting for zamzam or rainwater. Do the program with tap water, with bottled water, with any other kind of water. There's no problem. And then if you get rainwater later on you can always, you know, you can always add it in inshallah. But definitely rainwater is the most blessed water after zamzam because... 
of the, the ayah and the hadith that Allah Azzawajal said, called it ma'un mubarakun, that it is uh, a blessed, or ma'un mubaraka, it is a blessed water. And the Prophet ﷺ used to uncover his, his garment and let it touch his skin because he said that it has just come from its Lord. So there is definitely a, a sort of a, an increased barakah in that. But obviously Zamzam is probably the easiest for us to get. Number two, olive oil. One bottle per person should be more than enough. In fact, you won't even need one bottle per person. You know, this would probably do a whole family. Now this uh, 500 mil would probably do a whole family read, to be honest. You don't need a great deal. I would recommend, this is in my curly bracket, so I wrote this, organic, cold-pressed, extra virgin olive oil. It's not expensive. Get the good stuff. You know, don't get the one that looks like you just fried, you put made fries in it. You know, it's like it, yellow and like pale. It should be green, it should be thick, it should look like real olive oil. And my preference is Palestinian extra virgin olive oil. And the reason I prefer Palestinian extra virgin olive oil is because it comes from a land that is blessed. Subhanallah asra bi abadihi laylan min al masjid al haram ila al masjid al aqsa alladhi barakna hawla. The masjid al aqsa that we blessed the area around. If you can get a blessing on top of a blessing, inshallah that's a double blessing inshallah. So we hope that Palestinian extra virgin olive oil is the best. However, if it's not easy to get, in, in Medina there used to be some brothers used to come from Palestine and bring, you know, in the boot of their car, like really fresh, you know, fresh extra virgin olive oil. If not, just get the best that you can, you know, you can get. Um, I mean, alhamdulillah here, generally in the Middle East, because they use it more in things, you can actually get it quite, you know, in any small shop, in any small supermarket, you can get quite good quality. Again, you know, if I'm going to be picky, I would recommend you get it in a, a dark bottle rather than a clear see-through bottle because it's very sensitive to, being, uh, to going bad. And if you want the full blessing of it, you, know, you want to get the best quality possible. So, I mean, these are all extra tips. At the end of the day, olive oil, the best you can get, basically. Allah describes it as from the oil of a blessed tree. And the Prophet ﷺ said, eat olive oil and oil yourselves with it, for it is from a blessed tree. Eat it and oil yourself with it. Cover it in your, cover your, your, your skin with it because it's from a blessed tree. The third thing that you will need is honey. And this should be ideally raw honey and organic and of good quality, not supermarket junk. Here, again, it's quite easy to get good quality raw honey relatively easy to get uh, in the Middle East in general. It's relatively easy to get good quality honey. Uh, why I wrote Manuka honey is not because Manuka honey is the best quality honey, but because at least Manuka honey has a minimum standard that it has to meet to be able to be sold. They can't sell it unless it's at least of a certain standard. Um, I don't, in, in the Middle East, I never use Manuka honey because you get really good quality Yemeni honey and you get, you know, like really, really nice quality honey here. Very easy to get good quality honey here. Uh, try to get raw honey. So you want honey that has not been processed. The bees have not been fed sugar and, you know, like real natural organic raw honey. Because otherwise you're not really eating honey. You know, you're eating just like honey flavored or, you know, sugar flavored honey or something like that. You know, you're just, the, the commercial stuff is mass produced. The bees are stressed. It's not producing the same quality that you get out of it. So, I mean, if you don't find any, I guess, manuka honey, the advantage is that it's, 
it's supposed to, to be that they can't sell it unless it's of a certain quality. But you can get, you know, cedar honey, you can get um, uh, Yemeni honey, you can get mountain honey, Hadramaut has excellent honey. Uh, lots and lots of good places to get honey. And generally the supermarkets here, you can find, you know, raw honey, organic honey. You can find honey shops here in the Middle East, which you can't, in the UK, you, you can't find a honey shop. You know where they just sell honey. Here you can find places where you can get proper honey, inshallah. And Allah said there emerges from their bellies a drink varying in color, which there is healing, a healing in it for people. Indeed, in that is a sign for people who give thought. And the Prophet said there is a cure in three substances a drink of honey. So one of the substances the Prophet said there is a cure in is a drink of honey. And I want you to focus on that. That doesn't mean honey can't be used as a cure. For example, if you have a wound, you can put honey onto it uh, and it, it will close the wound and it will, you know, it will act like an antibacterial uh, on it. In fact, as far as I know, they were using honey in, in some uh, military field units. They use honey for people who are wounded on the battlefield. You know, they use a dressing that is covered in honey. So there are ways to use honey externally, but also uh, internally as well. Juan, is that the battery or not? Never mind. Uh, so uh, there is uh, the issue of honey, but the cure that the Prophet ﷺ recommended for honey is drinking it. So the, 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 the shifa, the most complete form of shifa in honey is drinking it. Black seeds, again, uh, this should be uh, organic. The scientific name is Nigella sativa. I think that's how you pronounce it. This is because the Prophet ﷺ said it is a cure from every illness. It is a cure from every illness. Uh, we'll just finish this uh, very short thing and then we'll, we'll sort the microphone, inshallah. So how do we then prepare? At the beginning of the week, we need to do the following. Sit down with the water and olive oil open in front of you and read the following. I'll let you just have a read of that for one second while we just fix the, uh, the buzzing microphone. Maybe you have to swap the microphone unit out. Just, just, uh, I'll let you guys just read through that, inshallah. Testing one, two, three. Testing, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. 
Ah, there you go, it's back again. Testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Uh, sisters, we're just going to send a, a brother onto the side. It seems like the problem might be on the sister's side. One of the brothers is just going to go across and uh, have a look at the speaker, inshallah. Testing, one, two, three. Uh, testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing. Testing one two three testing. Testing one two three testing testing one two three. Testing testing one two three. Testing 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 one two three. Bismillah, Bismillah. Bismillah, Bismillah, Bismillah. How are we doing? It's okay. It's not for anything to do with the audio. Okay, carry on. Okay, inshallah. Looks like we might have uh, solved the buzzing. Inshallah. Okay, inshallah everyone can hear me, I hope so. And uh, inshallah we've, uh, we've stopped the, uh, we've stopped the buzzing. Okay, so you've got these four core ingredients. Water, olive oil, black seeds, the actual seeds themselves, themselves, and honey. Put the black seeds and the honey aside. We don't need to read on them. There's no need to read on them. We're just going to focus on reading on the water and the olive oil. So there's no need for this to be done in front of the person. There's no need for this to be done sort of uh, by the person. But you need to have water and we'll just have an imaginary bottle of olive oil, water and olive oil. Open the two up and start reading ayat of the, uh, of the Quran, inshallah. You're going to be reading... Al-Fatiha, all the way through, ideally seven times because of the ahadith in which the Prophet ﷺ approved of that. Al-Baqarah, once all the way through. Al-Baqarah, all the way through. The last three surahs of the Qur'an, three times each. An ayatul kursi, seven times or three times. This is what the Shaykh said. I'm translating, unless it's in curly brackets, this is exactly what the Shaykh said. Al-Fatiha seven times is best, or three if you wish. Al-Baqarah all the way through. Al-Ikhlas, Al-Falaq, and Al-Nas three times each. And Ayatul Kursi either seven times or three times. Blow, again no spittle. Either at the end of each surah or after each ayah or whatever is easy for you into the water and into the olive oil. 
What I tend to do, I'll be honest, is I tend to, to, to alternate reading into one and the other and blowing both. So I will start by reading into the water, then continue reading into the olive oil, then continue reading into the water, and so on and so forth. So by the time you've done it, this water and this olive oil have had al-Fatiha seven times, all of al-Baqarah, al-Ikhlas, al-Falaq and al-Nas three times each, and Ayat al-Kursi three times or seven times, all the way through. One bottle of olive oil, one bottle of, of water. Uh, I do keep reading on them during the week. You don't have to. You can keep them just for the week and just use them. I quite like to, you know, when I use a bit, I like to just read a little bit in it, maybe al-falaq and al-nas and just blow again, but there's no big deal in that. When you have completed all of the reading, you are now ready to begin the program. How to use. Step number one. Take two tablespoons of honey and dissolve them in a cup of the zamzam water that you have read upon. Add seven black seeds, seven, seven seeds, and drink. Do this three times per day. Obviously, the Prophet did not specify the number of seeds or the number of tablespoons of honey. This is the Sheikh uh, giving you what he thinks to be the best method. Uh, you're going to drink it, and you're going to do it three times per day. Before you go to sleep, Anoint the entire body from head to foot with olive oil that has been recited upon. So you take your olive oil, you pour a bit onto your hands, you rub it in, and you start with your head, your scalp, your face, your ears, your neck, your shoulders, your chest, your back, stomach, you know, your, your legs. You, you cover your whole body in olive oil. That is from the sunnah to do. The Prophet said, anoint yourself with it. Yeah, use it as a, a rub. And we find the best time to do it is before you go to sleep. Uh, for a number of you, practically, it saves you walking around all day with olive oil all over you. And also, it helps that the, whole, the oil will be on for a long period of time. Any 12 hours, 8 hours, 10 hours, you're going to have this oil that is you know, on you that is kind of working on the external. And the drink that you're drinking is working on the internal. Upon waking... Wash the entire body with water and soap. That's just to get rid of the residue of the olive oil. Then take half a cup of the water that has been read on and add it to a bucket or other container. So maybe you've got a jug. Half a cup of the water and fill up the jug or the bucket with tap water, warm tap water, and then wash the body with it. So three steps only. Two tablespoons of honey and seven black seeds dissolved in a cup of water. Don't you, does, the water doesn't need to be hot. You just need to stir it enough. I used to think you need to heat the water. But then after a while, I've realized if you just stir it for long enough, it does, it does dissolve in the, in the water eventually. Even if the water is cold, it will dissolve in it. Drink that three times a day. If you're fasting, drink it Maghrib uh, after Isha and for Suhoor. If you're not fasting, then you can just drink it, you know, Fajr. Dhuhr and Maghrib or whatever you want to do inshallah uh, Before sleep anoint the entire body head to foot with olive oil uh, And when you wake up wash the entire body with water and soap to get rid of the residue Then take half a cup of water Pour it into a bigger jug Fill it up with water and pour it over yourself 
I personally prefer to pour it from the back of the head over because I think there is an evidence for this in the hadith of Sahel ibn Sa'd radiallahu ta'ala an to pour it over the back of the head continue doing this for three whole days after three days has passed or three nights of anointing yourself with the olive oil you don't need to do the whole body after that you can just do any areas where pain is found so for example you don't need to cover your whole body on the day on the fourth night you can just if you have a pain in your shoulder if you have a pain in your head and I always keep leftover olive oil it is excellent for headaches migraines uh, anything like that you know just keep the oil and rub it into your head very good people will say can you read on black seed oil etc yes but it's not as close to the sunnah because the sunnah with regard to the black seeds is the seeds themselves and with regard to the oil is olive oil but you can for example if you want to rub it into your head you can rub black seed oil into your head outside of the program um, again you continue drinking the honey three times a day all the way through to day seven what should you expect on the first day you probably feel okay on the second and third day you may feel very very ill excessive tiredness pain over the body certain places aches and pains as though you carried out strenuous exercise by the fourth day you may feel completely refreshed as though you have a lot of energy by the permission of Allah and the aches and pains will gradually go away over the course of the seven days if the patient does not feel better after seven days or the seven day program has resulted in a worsening of the symptoms then you need to move on to the full Rukia program of which the seven day is one component you do it once a month or twice a month why don't you do it every day it's just too burdensome you know to ask someone to be doing it every day of the of the month is is a big burden and again people just won't do it so my recommendation is just you know just suffice yourself inshallah with doing it approximately once a month or every other week for those who are afflicted for those who are not afflicted maybe I do it a couple times a year something like that it's not a you know it's, it's not a big deal and uh, that kind of concludes the Rukia program now uh, the reason I mentioned it brought me on to an interesting topic is using Rukia for preventative medicine which parts of that program do I recommend you doing for preventative medicine I you've got no problem but you just want to keep yourself protected to be honest I don't see any evidence for using Rukia in this case the only thing you should really be doing for preventative medicine is your adhkar including the ayat of the Quran blowing on yourself when you go to sleep al-falaq and al-nas and, and this kind of stuff uh, including the you know uh, the adhkar of the morning and the evening and, and this kind of stuff and possibly the seven day program every now and again it doesn't hurt to do the seven day program uh, maybe twice a year something like that it just gets rid of any evil eye or any especially if you're feeling a bit down and you're feeling a bit like maybe you've had a few problems and maybe a little bit of evil eye afflicted you and just do the seven day program and get rid of it and I use the seven day program as a standard response to most people who come and say I've got a problem I say before we go anywhere seven day program first of all it will teach them commitment it will teach them to be regular and secondly it gets rid of the problem in many cases you know not not I mean maybe 30% of cases but still 30% is a good number 
to get rid of before you even start, before you even need to have people in the Rukia clinic doing Rukia on them every day, before you even need to do that, you can get with a seven-day program, inshallah, 30% will, will just get cured completely, alhamdulillah, in seven days, just from honey and olive oil and, and whatever. Maybe another 10, 20% will be much better to the point that they can now read upon themselves. And that will leave you with just the ones who are, you know, who need some Rukia, put them on the full Rukia program. So everyone understands I've given you two programs, the full Rukia program and the seven day. The seven days are part of the full one. The full one is the one where you have 45 minutes um, of reading. One other question we got asked, which is quite uh, useful. Uh, one of the, the, the questions, what if I can't read the Quran very well? I don't understand Arabic. Does that make a difference? No doubt the more khushu' you have, the better your pronunciation is, the more connection you have to the ayat, the more you remember their meanings, the more effect you're going to have. You know, I don't think there's any doubt in that. But that's not a reason not to read. That's a reason to read and develop your, you know, your recitation and your meaning, your understanding, inshallah. That takes us up to point number four. We're still on this when I start. We're still on this, how do I start? What do you tell people when they start? Number five, read and implement the answer to the question, how can I protect myself? How can I protect myself? So this is a, another article that was, I wrote to answer a very, very, very common question. And this is true as a preventative measure and it's also true, inshallah, as a uh, it's true as a preventative measure, and it's also true, inshallah, as uh, a treatment for Rukia patients. I fear that I am at risk of a jinn attack, magic, or the evil eye. How can I protect myself? The answer, this is an important question and one that is relevant to almost everyone at some time or another. The answer is not to do one single thing, but to do as many of the things that Allah has established as causes for protection as possible, while affirming these causes are nothing more than causes and will only be effective with the permission of Allah. This is really important. You don't get protected by reading Ayatul Kursi at night. You get protected by reading Ayatul Kursi and by reading the Adhkar in the morning and the evening and by, uh, you know, for example, uh, affirming the oneness of Allah and by following the Sunnah and by seeking the protection of Allah, and by making dua, and by praying five times a day. So you don't rely on one means to gain your protection. You need to try to gain that protection in a holistic manner where you seek it from multiple uh, causes. So from the most important causes of protection, and the number one that I have listed in my article, and I'll let you read the article in full later on, I'm not going to read it all out for you, but the first is Tawheed, and as I said, there is no greater cause of protection from the trials of this world and the next than to affirm through knowledge and action that Allah is one in His Lordship, in our worship of Him, and in His perfect names and attributes. He has no partner in any of these things. There is nothing more important than that. That is the message the Prophet ﷺ was given. That is the meaning of La ilaha illallah. That is the essence of protection. How is it or why is it the essence of protection? Because of the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, 
وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ Ayah number 82 of Surah Al-An'am, Allah Azza wa Jal said, those who believe and do not mix their belief with injustice, it is they who will have security and it is they who will be rightly guided. This ayah was revealed regarding Tawheed and abstaining from shirk. So when you have that oneness of Allah and you abstain from making a partner with Allah, then you are guaranteed from Allah Azza wa Jal Al-Amnu Wal-Ihtida Al-Amn is safety and security and protection So the first and most primary cause of protection is worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal alone The second that I've mentioned is striving to follow the Sunnah because Allah Azza wa Jal said فَلْيَحْذَرِ الَّذِينَ يُخَالِفُونَ عَنْ أَمْرِهِ أَنْ تُصِيبَهُمْ فِتْنَةً أو يُصِيبَهُمْ عَذَابٌ عَلِيمٌ let those, who let those beware who turn away from the Prophet's order lest a trial strike them or a painful punishment. So there is a danger of a painful punishment and a trial for those who turn away from the guidance of the Prophet These are major causes of protection. Don't think these are small things. You know, I read my adhkar and then I do an innovation. I read my adhkar and then I pray to other than Allah. These things, if you don't get the first two right, there is no dhikr that you can do and there is no dua that you can make that will save you. Wallahi, take it from me. If you don't have the worship of Allah for Him alone and the action is not in accordance with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, then you can make dua from the morning until the evening and it will not be answered nor will it be of any benefit to you. And this is proven from the ayat and the ahadith clearly that Allah Azza wa Jal said that the one that makes a partner, their actions will be read null and void. Your dua will be null and void. Your dhikr will be null and void. So the two greatest sources of protection are first of all your worship of Allah alone and with no partner and your adherence to the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Number three, the prayer. So far I haven't mentioned any dhikr, any adhkar. The prayer. Because the Prophet ﷺ informed us that the protection of Allah is given to the one who prays Fajr in the congregation. The prayer is something we have been commanded to guard and in the Sunnah we are told that the one who guards the rights of Allah, Allah will protect him. In the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, Guard the things Allah told you to guard and Allah will guard you. Allah will protect you. What is one of the things you've been commanded to guard? Guard the prayer. If you've been commanded to guard the prayer, and you add that to the hadith of Ibn Abbas, the conclusion you have is that if you pray, Allah Azza wa Jal will protect you. Taqwa. The word taqwa itself indicates that you'll be protected. The very word taqwa indicates a protection. And again, I'll leave you to read the detail there. Uh, and Allah Azza wa Jal said, corruption has appeared in land, at land and at sea by what the hands of people have earned. So if you're not preventing the punishment of Allah 
and preventing these things by keeping away from sins and doing good deeds, then you are opening yourself up to affliction. So I've mentioned four here. None of them have anything to do with adhkar. The first, number four, top force, means of protection, have nothing to do with dhikr. And that is why, perhaps, or the prayer relates to dhikr, but nothing to do with a specific dhikr of protection. And that's why I think that people have a misunderstanding. Someone will say, you know, I do my dhikr. You know, I, I said, oh Allah, protect me. I read al-falaq today. I should be protected till the evening. Why have I been afflicted? Look at these four things. Tawheed, sunnah, prayer, taqwa. Tawheed, sunnah, prayer, taqwa. Worshipping Allah alone, sticking to the sunnah, praying in the right place, in the right time, the right prayer in the right place, in the right time, and keeping away from sins. Because you might say, oh Allah, protect me, and then do a sin that removes the protection of Allah from you. And then say, why have I been afflicted with magic when I ate seven dates this morning? I ate seven dates. As the Prophet said, The one who has seven dates in the morning, in some narrations, seven ajwa dates, and in some... From Al Aliya or Min Al Aliya, from a place in Medina called Al Aliya. And in some narrations, seven dates of Medina, and lots of narrations. But you ate the seven ajwa from Medina, from Al Aliya. You ate them, and then you were afflicted the next day. You ask why, usually, usually, because of one of these four things a mistake in Tawheed, in adherence to the Sunnah in prayer or in keeping away from sin because all of these can take away the protection of Allah from you number five seeking the protection of Allah through dua and prescribed adhkar this must be something done regularly and habitually not for one day and then miss the next it is also necessary that the heart is engaged along with the tongue and the limbs act in accordance to the dua that is being made this gives you two reasons why your, your dhikr doesn't protect you. We're talking, we haven't quite got to the obstacles, but we're getting there. Two reasons why your dhikr doesn't protect you. Number one, if it's not done regularly and habitually. You know, on the day you thought you were going to meet a magician, the seven dates come out and the dua book comes out, Hisnul Muslim, and you know, Allah. And you fear. I'm not saying you won't be protected. It's not for me to take the protection of Allah or to give the protection of Allah to anyone. But you fear that if a person is not doing it habitually, that when it really matters, they might not have done the, the dhikr. For example, they might be safe for that day, but the magician may try to do something to them for many days. And maybe on the first day, you know, they do their dhikr, they miss the dhikr on the second day and they become, they become hit, they become afflicted. So bear in mind that just dhikr on its own, it needs to have some other conditions there. Also, not having the heart and the limbs engaged. The most complete form of dhikr is the dhikr where the heart and the tongue and the limbs are all working together. Not the dhikr where the tongue is moving and the heart is thinking about something else. 
and the limbs are doing something else. So the heart should be connected, engaged to the dhikr that you're doing, and your limbs should give truth to that dhikr. Your limbs should give truth to that, to that dhikr and that remembrance. Subhanallah, a lot of times we say, oh Allah, protect me. And then we go out to a place where we know Allah is not happy as to, for us to go there. We go to a place that we know is a place of haram, where Allah is not happy with us to go there. And then we say, why, why did Allah not protect me when I made this dua and this dhikr? Because you removed the protection of Allah from yourself. Your limbs were not giving truth. Your tongue was saying, protect me. And your limbs were saying, I don't care. This is mushkin. But it happens. People say, why? I made my dhikr, I made my dua. It's not working, I'm not getting any better. We say to them, you can't just move your tongue. Your heart has to be engaged and your limbs have to act as though they want that protection from Allah. You say, oh Allah, protect me from looking at the haram. And then you go out to a place where you're surrounded by the haram and say, why did Allah not protect me? Allah protected you until you removed the protection of Allah from your own self by going to that place, knowing what you would see, knowing what you would experience. And then you say, Allah protect me. From the different to the one who says, Allah protect me and finds himself in that place without his intention, inshallah, we hope that Allah will protect him. But not the one who goes there and then removes the protection of Allah from himself. Number six, the greatest form of remembrance of Allah is the recitation of the Qur'an. As Allah said, when you recite the Qur'an, we put between you and those who do not believe in the hereafter a concealed partition. The magicians are unable to, to act against the recitation of Al-Baqarah. The Prophet ﷺ told us the last two ayat of Al-Baqarah recited at night suffice a person. He told us the protection of the last two surahs of the Qur'an as well as Surah Al-Ikhlas. At the end of the day, you have so much in the Qur'an. If you want to protect yourself, keep reading the Qur'an. It's not necessary for you to do ruqya on yourself, but keep on reading the Qur'an. Keep yourself constantly reading the Qur'an. وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ يَا رَبِّ إِنَّ قَوْمِ اتَّخَذُوا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ مَهْجُورًا The messenger will say, Oh my Lord, my people have taken this Qur'an as something to be abandoned. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said that from abandoning the Qur'an is not using it for ruqya. He said that one of the types of abandoning the Qur'an is not using the Qur'an for seeking shifa. And one of the types of abandoning the Qur'an is not reading the Qur'an every day. Not having a part, part of the day where you read the Qur'an. So if you want the protection of Allah, read the Qur'an. Protection of the house as a means of protecting yourself. We've already talked about this. The house should be a fortress. Don't invite the shaitan into the house. Uh, purify the house of pictures, films, music, free mixing. Make it a place of prayer, a place, place of learning Islam and obedience to Allah. Keep the windows and doors closed between Maghrib and Isha and through the night as much as possible. The Prophet ﷺ indicated, and I have an article on this on the blog, you can follow it, uh, keeping the windows and doors closed between Maghrib and Isha and through the night as much as you can. Take to reading Al-Baqarah and the prescribed adhkar as mentioned above. Number eight, if you do feel you've been afflicted by something, then treat it quickly. 
Really, I can't emphasize enough the importance of this. Treat your afflictions quickly. Rukia, I said, magic is very similar to cancer. If you catch it quickly, you have a very good chance of making a quick and full recovery. If you catch it too late, then you will be on for a very long time to remove that magic that, that flows through the blood, the jinn flow through the blood, uh, through the arteries, as the Prophet ﷺ said, through the veins, through the, the way the blood flows, dam through the arteries and the, and the veins. The shaitan is flowing through. You know, if you leave it too long, it becomes entrenched. It's not impossible to remove because nothing is impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But you're not making it easy for yourself if you leave it a long time. If you feel I might have been afflicted by something, bit of evil eye, seven day program straight up, first job. If any reaction, if it's not clearing up within the seven days, go on to the full Rukia program, which is the 45 minutes every day, daily, weekly, monthly, etc. You can seek advice, but it is far better to begin the program than seek advice. A lot of people, I fear they wait for me. Well, I, I really fear this. I fear, you know, I fear subhanAllah for myself. A lot of people send me an email that I'm feeling an affliction. And it might take me three months to answer. In that time, they may have made it very, very hard, you know, for themselves to be able to recover in a quick space of time. Don't wait for someone to say, do Rukia. Just do it. And then wait for the advice. You know, then you can kind of update and say, oh, well, well, since last time you emailed me, this happened, this happened, this happened. But there's no point in me putting this advice on the website and then having people waiting for me to say, like someone sent me an email, can you give me ijazah to recite Quran on myself? I said, subhanAllah, you don't need, you don't need an ijazah. It's genuine, I mean, it's a genuine question. It's not funny. I mean, it's a genuine question. Someone just saying, can I have an ijazah to, to recite upon myself? You don't need an ijazah to recite upon yourself. Bismillah. Just start, inshallah. Start tonight, start today, inshallah. And then if you have a problem, you can then seek advice, inshallah. If you are particularly worried about magic, this is number nine, then take to eating seven dates in the early morning. Um, if a patient is already afflicted, they should be observed while eating the dates. They should be observed. Why? Because usual thing that happens with my patients, I give them the seven dates. One date goes in, one date goes on the floor. One date goes in, one date goes on the floor. There's a little pile of three dates on the floor or two dates on the floor uh, before they, if, uh, or by the time they're finished. Or I had one sister who used to give her seven dates in the morning, uh, straight away in the morning, you know, before any food or drink, seven dates she had. Suddenly she needs to go to the bathroom, fingers down the throat, vomit the dates back up. So the person should be observed if they are already afflicted. If they're not afflicted, it's not a problem. But the person should be observed by a family member, make sure that they keep the dates down and they keep them down for, you know, half an hour. You know, they're not going to go and put their fingers in their throat and throw the dates back up again. That because there are so many narrations regarding the types of dates, then what we say is it is best to go with the most specific uh, narration first and then less and less the most specific narration is ajwa dates from aliyatul madina aliyatul madina is the road beyond masjid quba going away from the haram so if you're going from the masjid an nabawi 
to Masjid Quba and you keep going past Masjid Quba and straight, 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 you come to some date palms and date area. This is Al Aliyah. Get Ajwa dates from Al Aliyah. You can get them when you go to Medina, but you will pay more for them. Uh, and a lot of people will also trick, unfortunately, and say, you know, it doesn't matter, just give them Ajwa dates. If you really push them and say, are these from Al Aliyah? Can I see the stamp of the factory? These are from Al Aliyah. Then, inshallah, you know, you will get them, but you will probably pay double the price. If you can't find them from Al Aliyah, then I would recommend the next more specific hadith, which is Ajwa dates from anywhere in Medina. Ajwa dates from Medina. If you can't find Ajwa dates from Medina, then any Ajwa dates. This is the next most specific hadith. Any Ajwa dates. If you can't find any Ajwa dates, then any dates of Medina, whether they are Sukkari, whether they are any other type of dates, any dates from Medina. Again, try to make sure they're from Medina. Just because they're sold in Medina, they're probably from Tabuk. Doesn't mean that they're from Medina. So make sure they're Medina dates. If they can't be found, then any dates will suffice, inshallah. So finally, if you can't get Ajwa from Al Aliyah, you can't get Ajwa from Medina, you can't get Ajwa, you can't get any dates from Medina, then get any dates. Seven dates, whatever the kind of date they are, Bismillah. Because there are narrations for each one. In some narrations, the Prophet ﷺ said Ajwa from Al Aliyah, in some he said Aliyah, in some he said Ajwa from Medina, in some he said dates of Medina, in some he said Ajwa. In some, the scholars said Ajwa means good dates and doesn't mean the kind of Ajwa that we eat today. In some, the Prophet ﷺ said any dates. So we say start with the more specific and work down the chain. And if all you find is seven local dates, seven local dates, bismillah, inshallah, you will be protected bi ta'ala. Fear Allah as much as you can. Number 10, a patient must never seek to protect themselves with ta'weed under any circumstances nor should they seek help from magicians, faith healers, or engage in the practices of other religions such as putting nails in the corner of each room or putting chili powder on the floor. This is a Hindu practice. Okay, be very careful about these things. I mean, there are a lot of Hindus, Hindu practices, a lot of Buddhist practices, a lot of Sikhism, a lot of Ajib stuff in there, uh, a lot of Sihr that people do and they customarily, you know, like putting chili powder on the floor, like uh, burning incense and stuff like that. Even though some of the Raqis will say burn incense because you know incense was used in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, etc. But uh, it's very dangerous. And I tell you why incense is dangerous. Because magicians burn incense to call the jinn. So how do you know that the incense you are burning is the right kind that pushes the jinn away and not the one... And it's, for me, I, I, I'm not saying it's haram, but I would strongly recommend that you avoid weird and wonderful things. Incense, uh, f you know, faith healers, knocking nails in the corner of each room. This is superstition and tatayur, uh, believing in omens, you know, putting things, black tying, black cloth over the door. All of this is either shirk or leading to shirk. Chili powder in the room, putting out beans and lentils and... 
all sorts of really strange things people do. All of these are forbidden and all of them remove the protection either Allah, remove the protection from Allah, either remove the protection of Allah, either because you're making a partner with Allah or you're abandoning the sunnah. You either, if you do these things, you're either making a partner with Allah in the more serious case or you're abandoning the sunnah and that's serious enough. So I mentioned 10 reasons or 10 ways to protect yourself in this article, how can I protect myself? And now we came to number six in the how to get started. We're still on the how to get started one, right? Number six, watch the videos and make notes. Okay? Because the videos have a lot of information in them. And I mean, when people watch the video from today, inshallah, they will gain a lot of information, ta'ala, about Rukia. So don't discount those. Go through the blog. And number eight, the key to Rukia is patience and consistency. Many people email saying it's not working. For most of them, the problem is simply a lack of patience and a lack of consistency. Other problems include major sins that are not being dealt with or innovative practices that are being mixed with the Rukia. You know, people mixing Rukia with innovation and, you know, subhanAllah, shaitan holds on in any way that he can. You'll see a person is doing ruqya completely correctly, but just the adhkar al-sabah al-masah, they're reading it from one of these books that has like strange things in it. Like the manzil and these kind of things. And just stick to hisn al-Muslim. Some of the manzil is okay, some of it is ajib, but just, you know, subhanAllah, stick to what is reliable, stick to what is authentic. And the shaitan will hold on with anything. No, 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 you know, I read from this book. You know, or someone is saying, you know, I, I'm reading, you know, this 1,000 times, Allahu, Allahu. Everything else they are doing correctly. One thing they are doing wrong. Because the shaitan just wants to hold on in any way. So often the problem is innovative practices being mixed with ruqya. If all those issues are being tackled, then we'll come to the obstacles, inshallah, uh, after asr, inshallah ta'ala, um, as to why ruqya can take a long time. Number nine, ruqya is all about change. And circumstances change rapidly. Keep coming back to the information. What is resonating with you right now may not be what resonates with you in two weeks' time. Right now, you're thinking, wow, subhanAllah, the seven-day program, that's exactly what I need. Right, what did he say? Water, honey, olive oil, black seed. Right, I've got it. You do the program, and then after that, you want to do the full Rukia program. You might need to come back to the video again and go back over it because at the end of the day, we're human beings. We don't absorb everything. What you'll probably absorb are the bits that are most relevant to you or the bits that most resonate with you. But otherwise, you know, you keep coming back to the information. I do the same. You know, I forget herbal medicine and other things. I just forget about it. And then suddenly, subhanAllah, someone comes and says, I have really bad eczema and it's not going. And then I think, subhanAllah, I remember someone told me something. Go back to the information and you'll find there a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, inshallah. So those are basically the points from the where do I start article. Now I know it's very long, but I've tried to kind of really get you on the, on the firm foundation of a practical guide to self-Rukia. I'm going to add a couple of things to that in the next 15 minutes uh, before we break for the Salah, inshallah. Uh, the first is an article which I wrote called, it's my last article I posted on the blog. It's called, If I Only Do One Thing. A lot of people email me and they say to me, I've read your Rukia program, 
I've listened to your advice and I can't do it. Usually, I can't do it means I won't do it. Not, it rarely means I can't do it, but it usually means I'm not willing to do it or I'm not at a stage of iman or a stage of, um, of, of overcoming my symptoms where I feel ready to do it. If you could tell me one thing to do only, what would it be? And I thought about this long and hard. And I came across three evidences for what I'm about to say to you. The first one, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, قُلْ مَا يَأْبَأُ بِكُمْ رَبِّي دُعَاءُكُمْ Say, my Lord would not care about you if it wasn't for your dua. The second, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ دُعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ Your Lord said, call upon me and I will answer you. And a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, O oh Allah, the legislated acts of Islam have become too much for me. So inform me of something that I should stick to. He said, let your tongue not cease to be moist with the remembrance of Allah. Based on these three evidences, and this is only my opinion, based on these three evidences, that I would recommend that when things are too much and you don't know where to start, you start with dhikr and dua. And this shows a mistake some people make. Again, tunnel vision. I'm reading Rukia, I'm reading Fatiha, Ayatul Kursi. Ikhwani, don't ever forget to raise your hands up and ask Allah for a cure. And that for me is the one thing that if I told you to do just one thing and nothing else, I wouldn't like to tell you to do just one thing, but if I had to tell you just one thing, I would tell you, don't let your, your tongue cease to be moist with the remembrance of Allah. Don't stop remembering Allah don't stop saying subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allah cure me, Allah help me. Because this is the one thing that everyone can do. And it is the one thing that is mentioned in these three proofs as being something that subhanallah, even the non-Muslims, Allah Azzawajal cares about them when they make dua to him. Even those people who are not Muslim, because they, they make dua to Allah or when they make dua to Allah, Allah still gives their dua consideration. So subhanAllah, if you're not doing anything, at least, at least, at least, remember Allah and, and, and make dua, at least. Based upon this, I would advise the duas for protection, which we've talked about, the duas for protection, we've been through those, the Bismillah and the Bismillah la yadurru, the dua of Ayyub, the dua of Yunus and this comprehensive dua that I recommend, which is Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan wal-ajzi wal-kasal wal-bukhli wal-jubn wa-dala'iddayni wa-ghalabati'l-rijal. Because this dua, like the scholars of Islam say, it encompasses every kind of evil that a person can face. Can we pop that on the screen for a second? Just so you guys can see, this is an, another dua apart from the dua of Ayyub and the dua of Yunus, because every evil that you go through in your life is covered by this dua. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan. O Allah, I seek your refuge from anxiety and sorrow, wal-ajzi wal-kasal, and from weakness and laziness, or laziness and inability. 
وَالْبُخْلِ وَالْجُبْنِ And from cowardness and miserliness. وَضَلَعَ الدَّيْنِ وَغَلَبَتِ الرِّجَالِ And from being burdened by debt that you can't pay back. And overpowered by men wherever they are, the men or the jinn or anything else. So I personally feel that that dua is a key thing to make. The dua of Ayyub is absolutely key. Anni masani ad-dur wa anta arhamur rahimin. The dua of Yunus, la ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-zalimin. The basic duas of protection, your bismillah and your falaq and your surat al-falaq, al-nas, al-ikhlas, your basic kind of uh, that is what I would recommend you start with if you're not willing to do anything else or you're not able to do anything else. So that deals with if I only do one thing. Uh, I'm not going to have time, and I didn't think really we would, uh, to go over any specific cases, but I'll just ask you to put the screen on for just a second for me. What I'll just do is show you what I have. So one that I have is frequent nightmares. So that's a specific case of a problem. You know, we've been talking so far up to now about general cases. And this is talking now about a specific problem people have. You can read the answer for that on the website, inshallah. One is Rukia for non-Muslims. And I'll just go over this a little bit quickly. Um, I wrote this as an email to a non-Muslim who emailed me and asked me, can I get Rukia done? Uh, the first thing we do is explain to them what magic is and what the, uh, the jinn are. And uh, I said to them, in terms of getting rid of the effects, it's not possible for me to say that it will go in this time or that time, but I can tell you that Islam offers the only solution to the problem. When a Muslim asks my advice, I simply advise them to read Quran and trust in Allah. You can see the program that I asked them to do here, and I link them to the proper Rukia program. However, for a non-Muslim, it's a little bit more difficult. And there are two options that we offer for a non-Muslim. Number one, find someone local to recite Quran over you. This would be my preference. You find a Muslim to read Quran over them. The companions read Quran over non-Muslims, and the Prophet ﷺ approved of them doing so. And what I would do is I would send the Muslim reciter the link to the Rukia program, the 45 minutes, and tell them, do that for the non-Muslim. Number two, for you to treat yourself with whatever it is possible for you to do. So what might it be possible for the non-Muslim to do out of the things we spoke of? Seven-day program should be possible for them to do. Get a Muslim to recite over the, the oil and the water. Otherwise, just give them the oil and the water without reciting. At least, you know, it's still zamzam, it's still honey, it's still olive oil. You know, inshallah, it will still have a, a benefit in it. Uh, you know, listening to the Quran in audio form. Get the non-Muslim to put the rukia audio in their ears. This is a poor second best in comparison to the first option, no doubt. This is a poor second best in comparison to the first option. However, I put it forward at least as something can be, that can be done until they find a Muslim who will recite over them. And I offered them three links. One is a link to Rukia audio on my site. It's not my Rukia audio. <coughs> it's the audio of uh, uh, Sheikh Al-Ajami and uh, Sheikh uh, Muhammad Al-Luhaydan. I find these two to be the best uh, the best two uh, Rukia audio in terms of effect 
the seven-day program, and also a Rukia bath. The Rukia bath uh, is something uh, that is hosted on a site called Rukia Support, and it's basically a bath made out of herbs and things like cider and stuff like that that the jinn don't like. You can have a look at the link, inshallah, and uh, it's very beneficial, uh, and I recommend it to Muslims who are suffering from attacks from the jinn at night and things like that. And then I said to the non-Muslim, the reality is that Islam is all that I have to help you with. That is because the only true cure is to turn to the creator of the heavens and the earth and submit to him. What I must emphasize to you is don't go to another magician seeking to remove what the first one did. There are many people of different faiths who claim to be able to do this, but all of them use magic. And while it might sometimes bring a temporary cure, it doesn't last and the person ends up worse than they were before. And finally, I would not be doing you justice if I did not take this opportunity to invite you to Islam. You can listen to the story of why I accepted Islam by clicking here. And I'd be happy to explain further if you'd like to get in touch. I sincerely hope you'll be able to read a little bit about it and you will get in touch. If you have any questions, I hope and pray that it's not long before I receive good news of your cure and that Allah, the one who there is no God worthy of worship but Him, makes it a means for your guidance to that which is best in this life and the next. That is an example. It's not not the only way of dealing with a non-Muslim, but that is an example of an email that I wrote to a non-Muslim who asked me for Rukia. Rukia for children, again, uh, I, I don't have a, uh, we don't have enough time to go over the article for Rukia for children, but you can have a read of it. I think in the next workshop, I would like to take the detail on some of these issues. Rukia for children, Rukia for nightmares, Rukia for gin attacks at night, Rukia for uh, problems in businesses. And like, I think maybe next workshop we will deal with these specifics, but you can have a read of Rukia for children on the website. Trying for a baby without success, you can also have a read of that one on the website. That one has uh, to do with uh, Rukia and indeed treatment for people who are struggling to conceive. Now, I really want you to focus on this answer on one thing only just for now. And that is that I did not tell them, go and do Rukia. I didn't tell them to go and do Rukia. I told them to do every means possible, Islamic and, and, and worldly, to be able to conceive. So first of all, istighfar. فَقُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ غَفَّارًا يُرْسِلِ السَّمَاءَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِدْرَارًا وَيُمْدِدُكُمْ بِأَمْوَالٍ وَبَنِينَ Allah Azza wa Jal promised you an increase in children when you do istighfar. I told them about, you know, getting medical opinions. So whenever you, someone is coming to you with something that might be a rukia problem and might be medical and might be because of sin and might be because of disobedience to Allah and might be because of, you know, stress, what are you going to do? Don't give them the answer of Rukia and go away. Give them the comprehensive answer. Give them the comprehensive answer. Talk to them about istighfar, getting near to Allah, leaving sin. Talk to them about Rukia. Talk to them about lots of things. That's very true for people who talk about Rukia for financial problems as well. When people talk about Rukia for financial problems, you're doing them a huge injustice if you just say to them, read Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. It's a huge injustice to them because you don't know that the problem may well be sin or riba or any other issue. Give them the comprehensive answer with all of the means that are possible. And if you want to have an example of that, 
One is this article, trying for a baby without success. Uh, another one, jinn attacks and assault at night. Not very nice. I think all we have, uh, we don't have any kids in the room. But there are people who suffer from quite, uh, quite prolific, uh, sustained assault, often sexual assault at night from the jinn. Uh, and this is something really, really horrible. It's really, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's very distressing to hear about. It's distressing to have to deal with. Uh, but it does happen. And it happens to men and women. It happens to women more. But it, happens to, it does happen to men as well. Um, it's, quite, it's quite horrible. Uh, and it's something that happens usually at night and usually when they are sleeping alone. Um, and I've, again, I, I don't have time to go through with you. I will deal with this in the next workshop, inshallah. But you're more than welcome to read the answer, jinn attacks and assault at night. Um, there are ways of getting rid of it. I've got eight steps. I've tried these eight steps with the people who suffer from it. And alhamdulillah, I, you know, definitely there is a reduction in, in instances. Definitely. There's been a reduction. Um, has it gone away completely? Again, you know, you need a very large sample group to say that something works completely. You know, you need to have like, you know, realistically, you need to have 20, 30, 50, 100, 200, 1,000 people to be able to say that this is, you know, working across the board. But it appears to be showing good promise. You know, this, this method uh, of sorting the house out, adhkar, supplication for overcoming the enemy, Rukia bath, Rukia oil before going to sleep every night, not like the seven-day program where you just do it for three nights. Uh, waking up for the night prayer, the dreamer's handbook, and having someone else in the room. All of those things together seem to be reducing the number of cases. It's quite a, a nasty thing. And that kind of does, you know, I do want to highlight that, you know, as much as we sit here, and yeah, we, we also have a little bit of a laugh at times about some things. We have a little bit of a joke, and, and we may keep it lighthearted. At the end of the day, these are people's lives. Wallah, you see people who come and they have had their lives so completely destroyed by these shayateen. Wallahi, yani, you know, some people say maybe Muhammad Tim gets a bit, what's the word? You know, a bit vocal speaking about these people and other groups and who use ta'weed and stuff like that. But the reality is I see the, the effects of it. I see people who, you know, have severe, severe attacks at night who can't function, can't go to work, can't speak, can't marry, can't live a normal life. At the end of the day, it's not a joking matter. It is serious and it is horrible. And, you know, if, if you're kind of queasy in the stomach and it's not a good field to get into, you know, this is like you deal with some really horrific, horrific stuff. And I generally protect you from the worst of it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't talk about the worst of it. I don't think it's appropriate. And I think also... You know, maybe uh, it's not good for the person as well because at the end of the day, some of this stuff is really private and, and really quite nasty. But you bear in mind that, let's be honest, it's, it's not a nice topic. And Rukia is not there to entertain you. And I usually bring my, uh, you know, brother Basak for this, that, you know, my Rukia partner. Rukia is not there to entertain you. It's not there to, you know, oh, it's really fun. We'll come to a conference. We'll listen to it. Maybe someone will scream and shout and you know, someone will roll around and we'll all get our camera phones out. It's not like that, Yahwan. Somebody's life. That person, somebody's daughter, somebody's brother, you know, somebody's son. You know, they have to live with that every single day of their life. It's pretty horrible. So, again, I, that's just my caution. You know, I don't mind. We have, you know, we keep it light. I don't want to, you know, 
scare you to death. I don't want to give you nightmares when you go to sleep tonight. What I do want you to do is realize it is serious. And you're talking about people's life. You're talking about, this kills people. People die. People die from sihr. People die from jinn possession. People die from the evil eye. You know, children grow up without parents. Parents lose their children. It's a really horrible, horrible thing. And uh, while I don't mind in the teaching environment, we'll, we'll smile and joke and, you know, we'll talk about some funny stories that happened to me. No problem, inshallah. But when it comes to dealing with patients, you know, you give it your, you give it your all. You give it 110%. And you don't leave them. And you do your very, very best to keep confidential what they tell you and to try to kind of deal with it in the best possible way. Because when it comes to them, it's their life at the end of the day. And it's, it's really one of the most... Some of the stories are really horrific. It's not the stories of levitating and flying around the room that are horrific. But, you know, some of the, some of the other stories, they, they're the ones that really hit you. You know, I remember seeing one of the first Rukia cases I ever dealt with. And the sister more or less lost her marriage. Yani more or less, like, uh, you know, she was told she couldn't have children. The doctors told her that from the medical side. She would not be able to have children. So many things, you know. And at the end of the day, we don't say that someone is missing blessings. Allah's blessings are everywhere. But it's not a nice, you know, that, that for me hit me more than seeing someone flying in the air. Flying in the air, you know, fair enough. It's, it's a bit novel, but, you know, it's not, it's not harrowing. It's not like it doesn't hurt you and keep you awake at night. But when you see somebody sitting there like just in a complete coma, they can't move, they can't talk, they can't eat for themselves, they can't... You know, they can barely even use the toilet for themselves. They have to be looked after like a baby. And this is a girl who got married. She's two, two, three months. She's just been married. She's supposed to be living the honeymoon period with the husband. How to destroy a ta'weez. Again, I'm not going to take you through the article uh, too much. But there is an article on the blog called How Do I Destroy a Ta'weez? I mentioned it in some of the videos previously. And I would recommend you get very familiar with that. Because just even doing the Rukia talk now... I ended up with a, you know, I have already a little bag, I think some bag over there somewhere, that has been passed around with ta'weed in it. So get used to getting rid of ta'weed in a safe manner. Ta'weed doesn't believe in them instead of Allah. Wallah, they're very, very toxic. You know, I remember, I'll tell you a true story. You know, I, I, I you know, all my rookie sessions, I get bags of these ta'weed. So I, I put it in the car usually, and I left it in the car because I don't like to take it in the house. And I went in the house, I opened the door. The minute I opened the door, my three kids started screaming in unison. Like screaming. I mean waking up at night like, as if like they've been walking in their sleep. You know, all three of them in sync. I think three, maybe I only had two then. In any case, all my kids were, were screaming. I don't remember whether this was since I had my youngest son or not. But, you know, like they, they were screaming, screaming, screaming in unison, all of them. What happened? Just they woke up, they don't know why they're crying. They can't explain why they're crying. So I thought this is ajeeb, you know, usually I don't bring my work home with me as much as I can. Uh, so I thought, why are they, you know, why are they screaming? What is happening, you know, subhanAllah. And this, you know, they won't calm down. Alhamdulillah, I read Quran, they calmed down, they went to sleep. SubhanAllah, that's strange. I thought, you know, must be a jinn came with me home. Then I'm taking my things off and I reach into my pocket and I have... Still got one ta'weez that somebody gave me. Khalas, that's your reason. There is your reason. You don't need any other reason than that. Straight out to the car, leave it in the car, lock the door. And then inshallah the next day, uh, when I have a little bit of time, you know, bottom of the garden, get rid of the ta'weez. 
but straight up, these are horrible things. I, you know, I had one in the middle of a talk. Sometimes people come and give you them. And I got one in my hand. And as soon as I took it in my hand, I started feeling very, very unwell. Very unwell. Very, very nauseous, sick, uh, pain in my hand, shooting up my arm. Horrible, horrible things. These things are really horrible, toxic. Don't leave them in your possession for longer than you need to get rid of them. But at the same time, don't refuse them when people give them to you. Because this is, inshallah, and as we've mentioned in many other talks, this is a kind of jihad fi sabilillah. Because you're, at the end of the day, you're fighting to move the word of the shaitan and to make the word of Allah Azza wa Jalla highest and the word of those who disbelieve the lowest. So at the end of the day, you don't say to someone, I'm not going to take it, I'm too scared. Oh, Bismillah, I will take it. And then you quickly, you know, I tend to leave mine outside in the car somewhere where they're just, you know, safe until I can get rid of them. And I'll be honest as well, from the people who give these ta'aweez, many of them were imams of the masjid, uh, many of them beard, thaw, you know, kandura, headscarf, the whole thing, you know. Um, and I started a fight with one of them and it reached the level of death threats. It reached the level of death threats. Um, you can go through my tweets and you'll see I had a, I had a, little, a little verbal altercation with his muridin, his I was giving out ta'weed and I saw they were sihr, proper sihr. So I collected evidence and then I warned against him on Twitter. And then they started crazy, you know, they started street fights in his city and they started death threats and they said that if you, you know, tell this what is happening, if anyone retweets what Muhammad Tim wrote, we will kill them. MashaAllah, tabarakallah, adab yani. These are the guys who come and shake your hand with two hands and say, brother, come with us, peace of ilillah. Yani, mashallah, tabarakallah, come with us, peace of ilillah, and if you don't come, we'll kill you. Yani, Allahu musta'an. So alhamdulillah, yani, you, you will suffer a little bit from these ta'aweez, and we hope it is, uh, it's an example of suffering for the sake of Allah. Yalla, time is uh, for salah, inshallah. After salah, we'll talk some about the obstacles and then Q&A. Q&A session, at least the last hour, we will do for Q&A, inshallah.
Okay, guys, if we can just uh, sort of settle down just another minute or so, because I know it's a little bit of a short break, but also we have still a lot of material to get through. And we have a Q&A session, which I hope will be the most important part of the day. Okay, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Wahdah was salatu was salamu ala manlana manlana. Alhamdulillahi Wahdah was salatu was salam ala manlana biya bada wa ala alihi wasahbe. Amma bad. So insha'Allah ta'ala, uh, when I started the day, I had the intention of breaking up the day into two segments. One primarily on the topic of practical self-rukya, and the other one on the topic of overcoming obstacles. Um, in some ways, I feel like I have addressed some of session two already in session one. Session one has lasted one segment longer than I expected. And in the middle of there, we have covered things like sin and, and uh, as an obstacle, not doing your adhkar properly as an obstacle, and you know things like that. Though some of those things we've covered. But I want to focus on two or three really critical obstacles that are the most common obstacles people raise and how to overcome them. Uh, the material for these are also available as part of the blog. And the first one that I want to talk about, let me just, just briefly show you, if a patient refuses treatment. So this obstacle is probably the first obstacle that comes to you on the road to, to, to Rukia. And that is that you're all armed with your seven-day program, your... I don't want it. That may be, obviously, the effect of the shaitan. But I want to share a tip with you, and, I, and I'm hoping to write a blog post on this topic soon. I haven't yet. This is some of the, something new I want to share with you. When it comes to the shaitan influencing a person, Generally, as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, the shaitan will influence you and afflict you in that which you are already susceptible to as part of your weakness of your nafs. I think this is a, 
a golden piece of information and it's made a big difference to how I approach Ruqya in terms of the Dawah element and the Islah and the Nasiha. That a lot of people will blame the Ruqya or will blame the, the, the Shaitan, the Jinn, the Magic for causing certain problems in their life. And I don't doubt that the Magic or the Jinn are accentuating the problem and making the problem worse. But I would be very surprised if that problem did not have a foundation and a, an, a core within the person's own nafs. Why do I say this? Because the shaitan is extremely efficient. The shaitan is not going to try to get you to do something that is going to be very, very hard, very difficult for them. Take a, you know, unless it's done as part of small, small steps. The shaitan is basically going to go for what he already knows you have an inclination towards. So a person says, you know, the shaitan is stopping me praying. The shaitan is stopping me praying. I tend to find that in most cases, that person will have already had something in their nafs whereby they were not regular in their prayers before or they were struggling or they've always found their prayers a little bit difficult to get going. That is much more common. And I'm not saying that's always the case. Ruqya, we don't really deal with absolutes. The only absolute in Ruqya really is Tawheed and Shirk, Sunnah and Bid'ah. In reality, the rest of it is fluctuates up and down. But in most cases... The shaitan will take advantage of what is already there. The shaitan will work with what is there for him or her to work with, rather than to start a new uh, effort to misguide you in another thing. Now, yes, the shaitan may jump to one, but in general, take it as a fairly standard rule that the shaitan will work on what is already there. So if anyone says to you that the shaitan is influencing me in this, the shaitan is making me do this, then I would say for 95% for of those people, the answer lies in a dual approach. One, to reduce the influence of the shaitan upon them. Indeed, those people who fear Allah when they are touched by an affliction of the shaitan, they remember Allah and then they can see clearly. Or they remember what Allah has told them about the shaitan and then they can see clearly. Yes, one aspect is using ruqya to remove and reduce the influence of the shaitan. But don't neglect the fact that most likely there is something wrong with that person's nafs already there is an inclination there is a shahwa a desire in their nafs which is making the shaitan have an easy ride if you don't deal with them both together your cure will always be or your treatment will always be deficient so you need to try to deal with both of these issues together somebody says the shaitan is making me commit zina yes possibly I don't deny that absolutely. But more than likely, the shaitan is just building upon something that was already there in your nafs.
that was already there inside of you. If you don't get rid of it from both angles, you are just allowing the shaitan to come back at you again and again and again. Yes, the ruqya will reduce the effort or will reduce the influence of the shaitan, but bear in mind that also the nafs has a role to play. The shaitan invites you to the party. And it's your decision whether you come or not. Inna Allah wa'adakum wa'ad al-haqq wa wa'adtukum fa'akhlaftukum wa ma kana li alaykum min sultan illa an da'awtukum fastajabtum li fala talumuni walumu anfusakum. The shaitan will say when everything is said and done, indeed Allah promised you and his promise was true. And I promised you and I broke my promise. I did not have any authority over you except to call you. Da'awtukum, I gave you an invitation. Fastajabtum li, and you answered my invitation. Fala talumuni, don't blame me. Walumu anfusakum, blame yourselves. Wallah, the, the reality of the situation is if you think that blaming the shaitan or if you're dealing with a patient who is blaming the shaitan 100%, mostly this patient will be lying, whether they know it or not. And mostly the problem is within themselves and the shaitan is making the problem worse because the shaitan basically invites you to those things that he knows you have an inclination towards. There are some people in this room here who could walk through the middle of Las Vegas, past every single casino, and not even think once of going inside. And there are some people who if they see even someone playing a game of cards, they are tempted to, to join in and bet some money. The shaitan knows which one of you is which. And the shaitan will invite the one that he thinks is susceptible to that to it. And as for the one who he doesn't think is susceptible, he's not going to even bother with that. He will take him on another road. He knows he's susceptible to women, he's susceptible to alcohol, he's susceptible to, you know, looking at what he shouldn't look at, he's susceptible to being bad to his parents. The shaitan will play according to what is available. And he will, he will use what is available within your nafs. That is a, a super important point when it comes to dealing with these issues, do not ever just stop at ruqya. You're a da'iyah. You're a caller to Allah. You are doing the job of the prophets. Alayhim wassalam. Don't just stop at, let me do ruqya on him and khalas. Ruqya also look at what is happening within his nafs that might be making it easy for the shaitan to take control of that individual. And treat that through reminding them of Allah, da'wah, bringing them to the salah, the prayer, inna salata tanha anil fahsha'i wal munkar, the prayer prevents immorality and wrongdoing, through admonition, through saying a kind word, through bringing them to good friends, keeping them away from bad friends. Don't think that this is irrelevant to ruqya. This is absolutely relevant to ruqya. Because the shaitan is one half of the coin, and the other half of the coin is your own nafs. And your own nafs is enough of an evil against you. The soul is constantly commanding you and encouraging you to do evil, constantly inclined towards evil.
So whenever we talk about a patient saying the shaitan is compelling me, yes, this is possible. But bear in mind that for most people, there will be an element within themselves that the shaitan is working on. And so you need to relieve the pressure from the shaitan through ruqya and remembrance of Allah. And you need to remove the pressure from the nafs by treating it with admonition, reminders, remembrance, good words, good friends, keeping away from the sources of evil, and so on and so forth. All of the things that we would do for a regular Muslim who is disobedient in that regard. So that brings me back to the topic, but I just thought that was an important aside to speak about. Patient refuses treatment. You know, the jinn are not letting me do ruqya. Yes, there is probably some laziness within the person themselves. Again, I don't want to condemn anyone. I don't want anyone to listen to this and say, you know, you're saying that I'm lazy and you're saying that I'm, but it really is the jinn. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there's probably a component to the person's nafs that is also involved in this, which you need to get them out of. Maybe the dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazan wal-ajzi wal-kasal. Because al-ajz and al-kasal are the two situations you find yourself in. Either you're, you have ajz, you're unable to do it, or kasal, you're too lazy to do it. The reason you don't do something that you should do is either one of two things. Either you're unable or you're too lazy. So whichever one it is, that dua will hopefully you know, cure it and that's one way of dealing with that. And then of course relieving the problem of the shaitan through ruqya. But one of the most difficult things that any raqi faces is when the patient refuses to cooperate. Now, we have to recognize that in most countries, and I don't know what the law is like in Dubai, generally the GCC is pretty decent, but in most countries, ruqya is not an accepted form of treatment. In most countries. You can't get ruqya on the National Health Service in England, for example. There is no provision for forcing a person to have ruqya treatment in a way you can force them to have mental health treatment. In England, you can be forced to have psychiatric treatment. You can be what they call sectioned. You can be taken and arrested and kept in a hospital where you will be treated for psychiatric and psychological illnesses. But you can't be forced and kept for ruqya. In most countries, forcing to some, someone to have ruqya treatment or treating them without their consent is illegal. And it could not only put the patient in danger, but also the raqi. And once again, it could cause to ruqya to be banned or to be severely restricted in that country. So I really want you to sort of just think about that. My advice is that in general, unless you are in probably Saudi, let's be honest, and possibly some of the other countries around here, I don't know how Dubai is, uh, but unless you're in Saudi, it's very hard for you to force someone to have ruqya treatment. I don't know about here, but in Saudi, you can go to the hospital and the doctor can actually write you a prescription for ruqya treatment. You can, get, you can get sent to Iraqi and you can get, you know, like the doctor will say, hey, you need ruqya, you know. Uh, the downside is they don't have a great, they don't have a great mental health uh, sort of service, like in terms of people who need sort of like psychiatric treatment and stuff. Um, but alhamdulillah, you can get sent for ruqya treatment. 
That's not the case in most countries. And most of us here, I believe almost all of us here, are, are expats, we're here, we're not from the Emirates. Uh, and so when we go back to our home countries, mostly we'll be going back to a country where Rukia is illegal, and forcing someone to have Rukia is illegal. If that is the case, and even if it's not the case, it's very, very hard to treat a patient who doesn't cooperate. So what would we advise? I've advised three things. Three things that you can do with a patient that doesn't cooperate, doesn't help, doesn't want to have Rukia done. And I get quite a lot of these in England. And alhamdulillah, these three things tend to provide not a solution, but a reasonable solution to the problem according to what ability we have. Number one, recognize that your help comes only from Allah and turn to Him. If Allah turns the patient's heart towards Islam and towards seeking the cure they need, there is no jinni, there is no magic that can stop that from happening. Don't rush into after, grab them, pin them down, you know, like a dhahabi said, sit on his chest and read Ayatul Kursi. Doesn't really work in most countries, particularly in non-Muslim countries. It doesn't work. So remember that help comes from Allah. Make lots of dua. And remember that dua is not a cop-out. Dua is not a second best. Dua is the one thing I recommended. If you can't do ruqya, do dua. Dua is the most powerful weapon that you have. Don't neglect it. Don't think that I'm doing dua that's not, you know, that I'm, I'm just doing second best. No doubt the complete cure is dua, ruqya, medicine, the whole lot, you know, all together. But if you can't do the ruqya treatment, then at least you certainly can do dua. And lots of turning to Allah, giving sadaqah. The Prophet ﷺ said, Dawoo mardakum bis sadaqah. Treat your sick with sadaqah, i.e. by giving sadaqah on their behalf, asking Allah to cure them. And so on and so forth. If Allah turns their heart towards the cure, there's no magic that can stop that. If you are ajiz, and we said, you are either kaslan or ajiz. Kaslan, you're too lazy to do it. If you are ajiz, you just can't do it. You know, you're just stuck in the mud. Making dua to Allah is one of the most effective things that you can do. And I'll tell you a story in this. Bismillah. That Sheikh Adil told us. I don't think I heard Sheikh Adil say this to me, but I saw one of Sheikh Adil's videos. He was telling me this story. He said that a man came to him complaining of magic that was done upon his whole family. And the man came complaining and asking the Sheikh to give him something that would relieve his condition. And if any of you know Sheikh Adil, Sheikh Adil doesn't do ruqya, and Sheikh Adil just gives advice, and he's very, very strict on sunnah and following, and, and he said, look, I'm going to give you three things. If these three things don't benefit you, wallahi, there is nothing that will benefit you on the face of this earth. Now, I won't remember them word for word. One of them was tahajjud. One of them was sincere dua, and I think one of them was tawbah, but maybe they were mixed in together and there was a third. But in general, basically you get the idea. Dua, tawbah, tahajjud. He said, if that doesn't benefit you, I don't know what there is on the face of this earth that will benefit you. So the man 
was not able to solve the problem. He was not able to do the ruqya for whatever reason. So he said, I did what the sheikh told me. And I really looked at my life. And I began to repent from all of the things that I'd done. I began to get rid of my riba, get rid of my haram that I had done. And I turned to Allah and I begged Allah to forgive me in the middle of the night. And I kept on doing it. And look, this is the, if you want the key to this, the sir, the secret, I kept on doing it. Not I did it one night and said, where is the help of Allah? I kept on doing it night after night. In the middle of the night, the brother received a strange phone call. You know, your phone when you, it doesn't show the number. And he answered and he said, yeah. He said, go outside into this area of the, the garden wall next to this part of the house on the neighbor's side, whatever, beside the street. You will find what you're looking for. So the man got up and he went and he found a, a set of ta'weez buried inside the earth. What did the man do? Again, the secret. He kept on doing. And mashallah, very clever. Very, Allah gave him a lot of tawfiq. He kept on repenting. Not that I've stopped now, alhamdulillah, my problem is gone. Now I'm just back to my old life. He kept on praying at night. Oh Allah, help me. Oh Allah, cure me. Oh Allah, guide me. Oh Allah, I've repented to you. And he got another phone call. The thing that you are looking for is here. Out the man goes again. Little trout digs up another pile of ta'weez. Again, he doesn't stop. And I believe the sheikh, as I recall, the sheikh said three times. He took three ta'weez out. And he came back to the sheikh in Riyadh with these big bag of ta'weez and he put them on the desk. And the sheikh said, you have been destroyed. Yani, the sheikh thought he has gone to a magician. <laughs> so the sheikh said, you have destroyed yourself or some word like that. Halakt, yani you, have you, have, you have died or you've destroyed yourself. Yani how could you go? You know why you couldn't have supper? I told you what to do. He said, la, 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 ya sheikh, no. This is what happened to me when I did what you told me to do. So alhamdulillah, the, the hayat al-amr bil-ma'roof and nahi al-munkar, they took the, uh, the, the ta'aweez, they got rid of them, they destroyed them, and the brother and his entire family were cured. And subhanallah, I always use that as an example because subhanallah, wallah, one of the things it gives you, it reminds you that dua is not a cop-out. Dua is not second best. Dua is one of the best things that you can do when you are afflicted and you should never ever discount the power of, of dua. So when someone is saying, I'm not going to have treatment, I'm not going to get ruqya done and you can't force them, don't think that dua is a lesser method. Number two, try to encourage them and advise them. If they don't want to hear that from you, maybe they will listen to someone else. The way that you convince people is different for every person. But some people, for example, respond well to being challenged. Like saying to them, well, if there's nothing wrong with you, you won't mind having a brother read Quran. That works very well. You know, I think it might be a bit NLP, you know, neuro-linguistic programming type of thing. But it works, it works very well. You know, you say to somebody, if there's nothing wrong with you, you won't mind having Quran read then. And that kind of puts them in a situation where, well, no, there's nothing wrong with me, but I don't want... Any. Or, I want to come and take you to see a brother. He's a really good brother. You really like him. Let's have some food and we'll talk to him. 
you have some food, you talk to him, and then he does ruqya. Like there are there are ways that you can you know you can convince a person. Some people don't respond well to that, and they respond better to positive messages and general encouragement, like saying to them that, "Come on, just go, just once, just see how it is. It's only one time thing. Let's just see. We just do a one-off rookie session. I promise, half an hour. Sometimes I say to people, "I promise you, if you tell me to end the session, I'll end it." Someone might say, well, are you not putting yourself at risk that the jinn will end the session? You are, but sometimes the person will not accept anything else. So you say, look, I promise you, I don't want to scare you. I know you're worried about rukia. I'll start the rukia, and at any time you want me to stop, you just tell me stop, and I promise I'll stop. And I would, I would stop. But generally, just getting them started, and then they'll come again and again and again. Alhamdulillah. Sometimes it works not to tell people about the ruqya, but just let the raqi take the, the responsibility. Some people would feel shy to say to a third party outside of the family, no, but they'll say to their family members, no. So you go to say, for example, your brother and say, you need ruqya, and he's like, no. But you say, come and, and meet brother Tim, and I tell him he needs ruqya, and he's like, okay. That happens because people are different with their family versus how they are with a third party. Maybe get an elder person who is well respected by them you know, in the community comes over. Maybe it's like a kind of an uncle figure and he comes over and says, look, get, I want you to get this rukia done. And he feels like he can't say no to him. I use different ways to encourage and advise and persuade. And thirdly, and I think this is really important, don't limit your encouragement to rukia alone. The patient most likely needs to do more to practice Islam, even more than they need Rukia. They probably need to start praying. Rukia can be of limited effectiveness with someone who is not completely committed to Islam, as the shaitan has a stronger hold over that person. Make sure you begin by attaching their heart to Allah, convincing them to pray, fulfilling the other basic Islamic obligation. Once you can do that, you can build them slowly up to, say for example, reciting Quran and that will naturally bring them closer to Allah once they're reciting Quran they should be more open to having Rukia done remember if there are any issues in the patient's belief such as seeking help from other than Allah traditional misconceptions cultural beliefs or whatever you need to clear those out first anyway so a lot of people see the problem they're dealing with the problem in a very one-dimensional way A lot of people are dealing with the problem in a very one-dimensional way. I want you to have Rukia done. No. I want you to have Rukia done. No. I want you to have Rukia done. No. Sometimes that way is very, very one-dimensional and very, very difficult. Go a different way. Come on, let's go and listen to an Islamic lecture. You never know. That lecture may raise their Iman to a level where they then want to start praying, want to start reading Quran, and that raises them to a level where they then accept the ruqya, for example. They might not be praying, come on, let's pray. Let's just start praying five times a day. Let's leave the ruqya. I'm not going to bring the topic up again. It's over for a while. Let's just, let's just pray together. Praying five times a day relieves the burden of, you know, some of the burden from the shaitan. And then already they're ready. And then they're saying, you know, I want to have ruqya done. And I'm not telling you these things based on just imaginary ideas. You know, these are based on people we've tried this with. And it does work. Talk about, you know, maybe the person is praying, but they're not reading the Mus'haf. Say, you know what it is? You're right. You don't need Rukia, inshallah, from anyone outside. Just let's read a portion of the Quran a day. 
and before you know the person is doing ruqya on themselves almost and then they're you know they're, they're willing to have someone else do ruqya for them uh, and other things and again really remember actions and belief come together so if the belief is wrong the actions are nece by necessity are going to be wrong you're not going to get a person who has good actions and bad belief or bad belief and or good belief and bad actions in general you're going to find there's a link between the two might not be an absolute link but you're going to find there is a link between the two so if their person has cultural misconceptions the wrong way of practicing islam you need to deal with those issues prior to convincing them to start ruqya so it's not always about ruqya no ruqya no it can be let's pray let's read quran let's go and help an orphan let's go and give some sadaqah you never know what it might be that opens the person's heart to then getting the ruqya treatment done so that's the first obstacle the second obstacle and this is perhaps my most important one that i want to share with you today why is my treatment taking so long probably one of the number one questions that i get in terms of um ruqya from people who are doing ruqya and and more or less doing it properly a, pa a patient has been doing ruqya for a long time and the problem is not going they are following all of the recommended steps why are they not being cured the first thing i would say is be very skeptical about someone who says to you that they are following all of the recommended steps i've tried doing these steps and even I don't find it easy to do all of the recommended steps. Even I would not say, Jasmine, that I have done the Adhkar al-Sabah wal-Masa every single day for the last year or six months or whatever. So I find it very suspicious when someone comes and says to me, I'm doing everything. Generally, I would, be, I would take that with a serious pinch of salt. Anyone who says to you, I'm doing everything, I would take that with a serious pinch of salt. But... Let's just presume for the purpose of this discussion in the next 10 minutes or so that this person really is doing everything. They're one of those five or, or so people I can recall from the top of my head who I've seen them in their day-to-day -day life and I really believe they are maxing out. They are doing every single thing that can be done. These are reading Al-Baqarah twice a day, all of the adhkar plus the 45 minutes, Sabah, Masa, you know, dhikr before going to sleep, the seven-day program constantly, and they're not getting any better. What's the solution to them? So I've given the following answer, and I'll just talk you through the answer bit by bit. I started by saying this is a common mistake that many people make. They think because they are doing the right thing, the problem should go away within a certain time. And this is essentially a problem in managing expectations most people with rookie problems have the wrong expectation they come to you looking for a quick fix they come to you looking for you know and that's why when it comes to payment you'll often hear people say you know if i give you some money can we get rid of this quickly like and you know it's i'm not even joking. we're talking to about you know people charging ten thousand dirhams a rookie session people in the world today in certain countries charging 10,000 dirhams what do you think you think people just come and pay no people come with 20,000 and say if I give you 20 will you get rid of it straight away the expectations are wrong the whole expectations are all backwards if the doctor told you that you had 
لا سامح الله cancer you would not expect to come back after the first tablet you put in your mouth and be like am I done yet doc I don't have anything to do now you would expect a year six months two years of hard you know sort of medical treatment pain and all the rest before inshallah you go into remission and then you start getting better and you know rehabilitation and all the rest that's because we kind of know how cancer works and we have a a reasonable kind of expectation of the process of course not the same for everybody but generally if I said to you there was a cancer patient within six months they went into remission within a year they were back to their normal self you'd say Masha that's good going Masha well done that's really you know mashallah what a gift from Allah you know only a year a rookie a patient one session it's not working why am I not cured what am I doing wrong you're not a very good Raqi I need to go to someone who is more skilled. And some of the ruqa, some of the people who do ruqya fuel this, unfortunately. And they say that, you know, if your problem doesn't go away in one recitation of the Quran, then you don't have a jinn problem. Why? There is no jinn that can stand in the way of the Quran. There is no jinn that can stand in the way of the Quran, but Allah has given for everything. Allah has given a qadr, a length for everything. There is no jinn that can stand in the way of Allah's decree from the first decree to the last decree. And the decrees of Allah do not finish. Subhanallah, you can't stand in the way of any of the decrees of Allah. But subhanallah, at the same time, Allah decrees things to happen for a wisdom that is with Him. I said to them, this is a war between you and an army of the shayateen. And I'll be honest, often it is an army. Seven shayateen, ten shayateen, fifteen shayateen, whatever, like large numbers of shayateen involved. This war will be made up of many, many battles. Some of those battles you will win, and some of those battles you will lose. All of this has a wisdom in it that Allah has chosen for you. The Prophet ﷺ fought his enemies for over 20 years until Allah gave him victory. Over 20 years between the Prophet ﷺ, you know, fighting his enemies, struggling with his enemies, being oppressed, being persecuted, leaving Mecca, going to Medina, fighting against them until Allah ﷺ gave him victory. You know, years and years and years and years passing by. Yet he was the most complete of the people in faith. The one whose dua was answered. The one who was free of the major sins. The one whose past and future sins were forgiven. And 20 years he waited before Allah gave him al-fatih. Think about that. The most complete of us in Iman. And the best of us in the sight of Allah. Sayyidul awwaleen wal akhirin the leader of the first and the last of the people was taken 20 years or took 20 years to be given victory or over 20 years to be given victory over his enemies till they entered into Islam in crowds. Why should we expect that we will get a cure in a day or in an hour or in a single session? The Prophet ﷺ's dua was accepted almost universally, almost never his dua was rejected. And yet Allah did not give him victory in the first instance or the second instance or the third instance or the fourth instance. But 
decades went by before Allah gave him complete victory over his enemies. And his whole prophethood and his whole life of prophethood was spent in a battle with the shayateen, which of course Allah gave him the final victory in. But that final victory took a long time. And that is something we should take a, uh, a lesson from. Allah said, if a wound should touch you, there has already touched the opposing people a wound similar to it. And these days we alternate among the people. We give victory to them and victory to you. Victory to them and victory to you. Victory to them and victory to you. Why? So that Allah may make evident those who believe and may take to himself from among you martyrs. Two reasons Allah why he gives victory to the shaitan over you even when you're doing the right thing. Number one, So that Allah makes evident the one who is a person of Iman, who is going to wait for that victory to come, even if it takes 20 years, even if it takes 25 years. And to take martyrs from among you. And isn't martyrdom better than anything else than any alternative when the Prophet said that the one who is martyred would be the only one who would wish to come back to this dunya who would ask Allah and make dua and say oh Allah send me back to the dunya so that I can be martyred again and he, if a person subhanallah dies because of an affliction from the shaitan we hope they are from the shuhada we hope we don't testify because we don't testify for anyone they are shaheed because testifying you are shaheed is testifying you are from in, you're in jannah but we say shaheedun, insha'Allah. Insha'Allah they are shaheed. So insha'Allah, a person who dies from this affliction is shaheed. They died in order to see the word of Allah raised high and to lower the word of the shaitan and fighting against the enemies of Allah from within themselves and striving to pray and to do all of those things they were doing while they were being afflicted by the shaitan. This person insha'Allah is shaheed. So we shouldn't feel despondent and we shouldn't feel sad if sometimes we don't get the victory instantly that we want. In this ayah, Allah explains why he gave a limited victory to the disbelievers on the day of Uhud, even though they were fighting against the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. Allah gives his enemies respite for a time so he may test the faith of those who believe and may take some of those who believe as martyrs. This is the wisdom of Allah and you have to learn to be patient. Allah said, Do you think you will enter paradise when such a trial has not come to you as that which passed before you? They were touched by such poverty and hardship and they were shaken until even the messenger and those who believed with him said, Mata Nasrullah, when is the help of Allah going to come? Allah inna Nasrullahi qareeb. The help of Allah is near. You don't have to worry about the help of Allah being far away. The help of Allah is near. But you're going to be tested. Paradise doesn't come free. So don't be worried if it takes a few months, a year, 10 years, 20 years. If you're doing the right thing, you keep on going. Because Allah some of us, Allah has chosen to test us through this affliction. And some of us will die with this affliction without a cure. That is the situation. That is the reality. Some of the people will die 
from this without a cure, despite reciting, despite doing everything. Why? Because Allah wants to take them as shuhada, inshallah. Allah wants to take them as martyrs, inshallah. So it's not that Allah is giving them the raw deal. Allah is giving them what is better for them. So at the end of the day, don't feel that because you know, you're doing the right thing, that that necessarily you know, means that uh, you know, something needs to be changed. However, having said that, we now must come to the opposite side of the issue. When you use a weapon to strike your enemy, for that weapon to have an effect, certain things need to be present. The arm that holds the sword needs to be strong. Because if you have the sharpest sword, but you can't pick that sword up to strike your enemy with it, then that sword is of no benefit to you. Furthermore, let's imagine you have the strong arm and you wield the sword with power, but your aim is poor. You don't have a good aim. So you take the sword and you bring it to crash down upon your enemy and you miss. This is the example that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala gives for dua and for you know, other things and ruqya can be added to that. <coughs> that at the end of the day you have the perfect weapon in the Quran, the perfect sword. But now who is going to have the arm that is strong enough to wield the sword? And who is going to have the aim that is accurate enough to strike the enemy? So don't think it's just about, I've got the Qur'an and why is the Qur'an not working? The Qur'an is fine, nothing wrong with the Qur'an. The problem is in your strength to wield that Qur'an and your aim to target that Qur'an, i.e. through your iman in it, your belief in it, the way that you use it, the method of ruqya that you use, all of those things need to be tweaked so that you can take this perfect sword and strike your enemy with it in a way that will cause your enemy harm. For this reason, you should be self-critical. You shouldn't be saying, Allah Azza wa Jal tested the Prophet and you know, this is just my test and I'm doing everything I should be. You should be saying, are sins the reason why I'm not getting cured? And I'll tell you a, you know, a story, a true story of a case study we had, reading upon a sister. And we read on her for a very long time and uh, you know, <coughs> Quite, quite consistently, not really improving. And it was really one of those ones on, on my five fingers, you know, it was really troubling me. You know, I'm thinking, everything's been done right, you know, go back to the beginning, basics, rukia, everything's there, the adhkar, everything, you know, the rukia is going fine, we're just not getting anywhere with this case. And Allah Azza wa Jal opened up my heart to be aware of something that was going on in her life. And I'm not saying that I was aware of a sin she was doing, but I came across it by accident. I got a feeling about it. I saw something and I heard something and I, I just got a feeling about it. So we called them and we said, look, come and sit down. And the family and said, look, please don't be upset if I say something now that I think might upset you, you know, please. I'm, I'm really saying it because I believe that it's, it might be true. Is there something going on in this vein, this area, this particular thing? Because I just have this feeling something is going on. So then, khalas, it all came out. This and that and the other. These certain major sins are going on. I thought, alhamdulillah, this is the problem. 
this is the problem. Alhamdulillah, we found why this ruqya is not going anywhere. There is a major sin that is blocking this from having an effect. Give the sister some admonition. She changed. She sorted out her situation. The jinn just started leaving, like just dropping. You know, in one rukia session, just drop, 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 drop. One leaves, next one leaves, next one leaves, next one leaves, like this. And in the end, there was some, you know, couple whatever remaining. But subhanallah, the situation was like we had a brick wall. We just couldn't move forward. We try, bring some other people, read, read, read. Nothing. We got rid of this major sin that was on was nothing to do with Rukia and nothing to do with the jinn and straight away problem starts clearing up situation is much better so don't ever 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 forget to be self-critical uh, and to reflect upon yourself this is healthy up to a certain point but again I always say remember what Yaqub said all my sons go out and find about Yusuf and his brother. Don't despair for, 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 or of relief from Allah. Nobody despairs of relief from Allah except the disbelieving people. So don't ever feel like Allah is never going to help you or I've got too many sins, I can't get rid of them. But just be aware that sins do stop the ruqya from working and sins do allow the shaitan to take hold of you. So if you find you're getting sort of against a brick wall in ruqya, seriously, seriously, look at your sins. And I did a talk Friday night reminder, Friday night reflection. I'll get it right eventually, maybe by the end of the year. Um, Friday night reflection. I did a talk about recognizing our sins. If you think this is an issue, refer back to that talk, inshallah ta'ala. I believe it is on YouTube, on the Kalima YouTube channel, uh, about sort of reflecting on how much we sin and the mistake of saying, I don't sin. If you ever feel like I don't sin, maybe that will help you to open your eyes as to how much we all sin all the time. And then realize that this is a major reason why Rukia is not working from the Raqi and the one who is being read upon. Because like Sheikh Ali mentioned in his book, Al-Istishfa, he said that, you know, subhanAllah, this is an issue for the Raqi and the one who is being read upon. The Raqi sin stop his Rukia from being effective and the one who is being read upon, their sins stop the Rukia from being effective for them. And again, be careful, male, female, sort of in the same room, etc. You know, you look at the sister, you know, shaitan comes to you, whispers something in your ear, and your ruqya may stop working. Because you have now done a sin which may be a barrier for that ruqya. So a lot of istighfar, istighfar is a much underrated tool in ruqya and indeed in solving all of life's problems. Istighfar is one of the most essential things to stopping problems in people's lives and relieving, bringing relief, seeking forgiveness from Allah, asking you know, Allah to forgive us. This is one of the, the major causes and the major means for getting relief from your problems uh, and uh, finding a way out. Finally, what we recommend people to do in this case is check what you are doing against the recommended program for Rukia patients. So just if you feel you're getting stuck, again, even if you've been on my program from day one, if you feel you're getting stuck, just reset yourself. Go back to the beginning, seven day, 
full Rukia program, 45 minutes, where am I going wrong, what might I be doing, check the house, check, you know, reflect, self-reflection, get rid of some sins, let's just see where the problem is, and it's just troubleshooting, it's simple troubleshooting, where is the problem, there it is, okay, bismillah, and you'll find that it's never, almost never, one thing. It's lots of things. You get rid of one, and alhamdulillah, Allah Azza wa Jal gives you, opens the, the door of the cave just a little bit, yeah? Allah Azza wa Jal opens the door of the cave just a little bit. Then you get rid of another sin, the door opens a bit. You get rid of something that you were doing haram in the house, the door opens a bit. You turn to pray, more dua to Allah, more dhikr, door opens a bit. Get rid of something you were doing that was haram or an innovation, the door opens a bit. And eventually, through that process of troubleshooting and self-reflection, the problem goes away. So again, this is about it being more than ruqya, wider than just reciting and ruqya, also looking at the wider sort of spectrum. My last problem that I want to talk to you about today and how to overcome is uh, a problem that a lot of people have, a lot of, an obstacle a lot of people have, which is that I've been doing ruqya, my symptoms have improved, I feel much better. How do I know that my treatment is complete? And when should I stop doing Rukia? I said to them, Rukia is only judged as having been completely successful when the person experiences no further symptoms and has been blessed with complete relief from the problem they were suffering from. I would not stop Rukia until the person experiences no further symptoms and has been blessed with complete relief. This is something which usually happens in phases and each phase has its own unique challenges. In some ways, the latter stages of treatment when the patient is feeling better is one of the most important times for Rukia and one of the greatest mistakes people make happens in this time. So this is the time when the jinn have more or less gone. The person is pretty much better, more or less. Especially you've just had a big buzz. The jinn just went and left. The person shook, their legs shook, their body shook. The jinn left. person opens their eyes. Alhamdulillah, I'm back to myself. I feel great. This is where people make a massive mistake. Whether or not it's a gradual feeling or a one-off, I feel great, there are some very important points to bear in mind when it comes to the end of the treatment. Number one, do not stop Rukia. Once the treatment is complete, do not stop Rukia. Why? Because you may not be experiencing a complete cure. You may experience a partial cure, which you mistake for a complete cure. And a lot of people who do Rukia have this problem. You know, they get a bit of a, a buzz out of it. The jinn is gone. Alhamdulillah, you're fine. Go back to your family. They don't know. There might be another five in there. You know, there might be another one in there. They might, the jinn might come back. There are lots of issues where people can make a mistake. I personally recommend one month of complete rukia at the same level as you had before the cure to confirm the same intensity as before until you can confirm that the person is genuinely better. It doesn't have to be a month, but I do recommend around about a month. And I really feel, by the grace of Allah, this saved me from a lot of mistakes. A lot of issues in my 
I don't know if you call it Korea or time doing Rukia, you know that subhanAllah, I'm, a lot of times they save me from a mistake by the grace of Allah. That I thought the problem is gone, even with all the times I've done Rukia, I, I, you know, I was like, that's it, it's gone, we're done, alhamdulillah. This case has taken me six months and alhamdulillah the person is better. And just the little voice in my head says to me, keep going on the Rukia. Next day you realize, no, we still have a little way to go. And then alhamdulillah, the, the final relief does come. But we make a standard rule. You need one clear month of no symptoms with the same intensity of Rukia before I would see the person is better. It can be because the jinni is fooling you, playing dead. Oh, I'm fine, I feel great. But the jinni is actually just fooling you. It may be one has gone and left another and that one who was left was latent. I.e. was basically like sort of sleeping. I mean, I don't know what the word is. There's only really the word is latent. It was completely inactive. And when one of them gets kicked out, the other one, the latent one becomes active. So one of them leaves the body and you think everything is fine. The patient says, wow, I feel like light as a feather. I feel fantastic. I'm back to myself. The first time in six months I've been able to see the world as it is. I can, you know, hear again. I can speak again. I feel great. But what's happened is the active one is left. That makes them feel a big rush. They feel much better. And the latent one now becomes active. And this comes back. It may be that the jinni returns after leaving, and it may be the person has something like the evil eye and jinn possession, like a dual problem, which is very, very common. They have the evil eye and they have magic or something like that. And it may be you got rid of the magic, the jinn, but the evil eye remains. So again, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the raki reads for a month, but definitely the person should be maintaining a high intensity of rukia for around about a month to make sure that this problem is really gone. I don't really know a lot of people who do this other than me, I'll be honest. But I can honestly say from my experience, it really has helped a lot. It's helped a lot of times where I've made a mistake in my judgment, I made the wrong call, I thought the problem has gone away, and it stops relapses as well. Because relapses, they are a problem. When you have, uh, when you have an affliction, there's no doubt that you have a weakened sort of immune system against the jinn coming back. You are susceptible to the evil eye. You are susceptible to other people who have jinn problems. You are susceptible to becoming afflicted by the presence of other people or other jinn. You're susceptible of, you know, I, lots of issues there. So you really do need to, you know, to, to really make sure that the problem has completely gone away. Point number two, do not accept 90%. A lot of people accept 90% in Rukia. They're like, look, I got the best I could hope for. Alhamdulillah, 90% better. I only collapse once a month. Now I used to collapse every day. No, once a month is not good enough. Once a month is not acceptable and it's not good enough. If someone told you you had cancer and it's 90% cured but 10% of the tumor remains and it's malignant, would you accept it? You wouldn't accept it. You would say no, because that 10% is going to come back and become 100 again. Don't accept 90% in a jinn case. Not as a raqi and not as a patient. Aim for 100% cure. No outstanding afflictions at all. Number three, different phases mean different modes of attack for the shaitan. It may be if one door closes for the shaitan, he will simply move to another method. So it may be that the shaking and fitting stops but whispering and confusion increase. Then the whispering stops, 
but laziness in the prayer kicks in. The key to successful treatment is remaining constant and patient in tackling the problem and continuing to adapt to the changes that are happening. This requires consistency. Don't stop the ruqya at your first victory, no matter what happens. It also requires adding specific things to deal with specific challenges. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next workshop, inshallah. Specific things for specific challenges. Children, nightmares, attacks at night, waswasa, uh, you know, um, marriage problems, whatever. You, know, you do have to tailor your ruqya. Right now, we're just talking general. You do have to tailor it. But at the end of the day, the general works for most things and works for everything, really. And, you, you know, the more you tailor it, the better you will be. And, you know, we can add to that prophetic medicine. The more of that you use, again, you become expert in it over time. Do I really think that you guys need to sit there worrying about Siddur and Senna and, you know, honey and seeds and this and that and the other? Not really. I think the seven-day program is enough. In the future, as you develop your knowledge, you will develop knowledge of certain medicines, perfumes, etc. that will make a difference. Just help speed things up that little bit more. You know, like people talk about knowing the jinn. Do I really think you all need to know the classifications of the jinn and the, eye, the snake jinn, the jinn that flies through the air and the jinn that dives in the water? Asana, I don't think this is of a, of a huge benefit to you guys right now. In the future, we can talk about some points of benefit, adapting, and you know, inshallah, this will just make your ruqya a little bit more effective and a little bit more targeted, inshallah. And number four, once the problem is gone, the person remains vulnerable. At the end of the day, uh, for this reason, even when the person ruqya stops, and even after the month is finished, the person must be extremely observant in protecting themselves from future problems. Go back to the blog post, how do I protect myself? I think we had nine things on there or ten things on there. Tawheed, sunnah, prayer, taqwa, then your adhkar and dhikr and so on and so forth. You know, get all of those in there with the person and make sure that they're doing that. And finally, last but not least, they should be willing to resume full treatment at the first sign of a relapse. The first sign you see that they have relapsed, straight away, full treatment. Don't even think twice about it. You know, if you think that they're having a relapse, full treatment. If you stop the ruqya, maybe after two weeks, three weeks, you don't have to take a month. A month is my recommendation. You can do two weeks, three weeks, whatever. And you see a relapse, full ruqya, all the way back to the beginning. And then again, another month after they are clear, they've had the all clear to make sure that this problem has really well and truly gone away and there are no outstanding symptoms at all. Okay, if I could ask the brothers just to flick the screen for me, please. Uh, I thought I would you know, be a bit sort of kind and take you through how to actually get my contact information out of this maze. It's not that difficult. I, it's, it used to be on three pages, now it's only on two pages. It's not that difficult. So on the contact me page at the top of the blog, so from home, click on contact me. On contact me page, you need to click on the blog post. This blog post is called Solving the Email Problem. And it's basically me just moaning about how many people email me and, uh, you know, why uh, you need to be more considerate of other people and uh, yeah, any other things. But, you know, tolerate me. Read through the morning because it is kind of important. Number one, do your research. You know, a lot of people, do you have a video on magic? Do you have a video on evil eye? You know, stuff like that. That's just, that's just laziness, you know, you're not checking the video section of the website, not typing in YouTube. Uh, number two, keep it short. I have a really nasty rule now, 
which says, if it takes me longer than 30 seconds to read, I'm not going to read it. I'll send you a nice polite message just saying Jazakallah khair, but I'm not going to read it. I, I can't. At the end of the day, it's new Muslims who are suffering. It's Dawah who is suffering. It's Kalima who is suffering. I just, you can't do 200 emails that take you half an hour an email. It just, there's not enough time in the month. So it's not me being really horrible. I'm not a naturally nasty person. It's honestly just the only way that I can answer people's emails. If it takes me longer than 30 seconds to read, I'm a fast reader, but if it takes me longer than 30 seconds to read, you're probably going to get a nice email back saying, Jazakallah khair, please shorten and summarize the problem. Don't send a follow-up email or second question. Like, you know where I said, like, sometimes I look in my email inbox, five questions from the same person, one after the other after the other. Every time I answer, they just reply back with another question. The problem is that this makes me not want to answer. And honestly, it makes me leave sometimes, wallah, there are people I leave answering their question for a month because I know they will instantly reply back with another question. So I just don't, I leave it for a month. I put it in a, on a timer and I just reply after a month, even though I could reply to it straight away because they're hurting themselves by just instantly sending another question afterwards. Um, same as that is getting a second question before you answer the first. So before I've even replied to the first one, and also can you tell me, and also can you tell me, and just one more question. Uh, you know, also, um, you know, I also kind of also complain, and I know I'm mourning, but I also complain about people sort of, uh, I mean like these quick fire questions and asking things and asking huge things. You know, sometimes people ask you for a master's thesis. You know, if you don't mind, could you just explain to me the difference between the Sha'ira and the Maturidiya and all of the points of Aqidah and just summarize for me with the Dalil and the Ikhtilaf between the Ulama and this? If you don't mind, you know, when you have 10 minutes spare. This is a master's thesis or a doctorate thesis. This is not a five minute job, Yani. And also, I really, really, really strongly dislike people who want me to solve their arguments for them. You know, I've been debating with a Christian and uh, I don't know how to debate with Christians. So would you mind doing it? Juan, if you can't debate with them, don't debate with them. Don't put it on my desk. Number five, don't ask for Rukia. Don't ask for dream interpretation. And don't ask for someone else's contact details. Wallah, I'm not Abu Ibrahim's secretary and he's not mine. Even though I get a lot of emails, can you please give me Abu Ibrahim's mobile number? No. Can you please give me Abu Ibrahim's email? No. Can you please tell Abu Ibrahim that I need to speak to him? No. Sorry. If you need to contact Abu Ibrahim, he has a Facebook page, and you're more than welcome to try. At the end of the day, it's just not fair. He gives me a private mobile number. I can't just give that out to everybody. He told me, don't give it out. You know, at the end of the day, I, and also, I, he, I wouldn't like him to do it to me, and it's not, it's not fair, you know, like just dumping stuff on his desk all the time, like, oh, Abu Ibrahim, this girl wants to speak to you, this brother wants to speak to you, can you... I, at the end of the day, contact who you contact, whoever Allah gives you the tawfiq to get an answer from, alhamdulillah. And please, I would prefer if you don't keep asking for explanation of ta'weez. Send me your ta'weez pictures. I collect them. I have a little museum of ta'weez. I use them for explaining to people and showing people the reality of ta'weez. Send them to me by all means, but please don't uh, ask for a detailed explanation. It's just a waste of time. It's all seeking help from shaitan. And everyone's to know what does this symbol mean? What does this symbol mean? I've explained a lot of the symbols already in talks and lectures. Listen to the lecture learn them yourself, and then research, and maybe you'll become more knowledgeable about me than, more knowledgeable than me what, about what the symbols mean. So if you have a question, very simple. All you have to do is just click here, 
or here, or here, or here, and it will open up in your mail client with an email ready to go, you know, inshallah, no problems in it. Otherwise, muhammadtim at gmail.com. Okay, so that's in the blog post. What happens after that? Well, after that, I don't promise I will answer your email within a certain length of time. I can't, I just can't do it anymore. I can't say I'll answer it in, in a week or in two weeks. I'll do my best to answer the most important questions. I'll try and answer it on the blog. I'll send you a link. I'll do my best whatever I can. I won't be impolite. I won't leave your email without writing you anything. Even if you write me a horrible email, I'll still reply and say Jazakallah khair. But, you know, at the end of the day, I can't say that I will give you a personalized reply to every single issue because there's just too many Rukia issues. And Jazakumullahu uh, khairan to all of you for abiding by the rules and putting up with my morning about email problems. Okay, now before we, or as we ask you or invite you to submit your questions, we have one more thing that we need you to do. And I'm just going to put this full screen so that you can see it, inshallah. And I will try to widen it as much as it will widen. Okay. So apparently the brother said, this is 10% of the, of the questions that we've received so far. I think that means next Friday night reminders might be answering Rukia questions. Friday night reflections, I'll get it right eventually. Is it like, there's two riwayat. <laughs> Friday night reflections. Uh, guys, please do me a favor, please, Ikhwani. If you have your smartphone with you, your tablet with you, uh, your laptop with you, Please complete the online Kalima survey. Please do it now for me, yeah? It really helps. It helps the guys at Karima to make the next event better. More, more of what you want, less of what you don't. You know, we only know when you tell us. Okay? So please do complete the survey while I have a read through these questions. Okay. Uh, I'm going to trust in your ability to do two things at once, inshallah.
Wi-Fi password not working? One minute, they're working on it. It's working. Ah, website is not... Do you need to add another backslash? Okay. Try it with or without a backslash at the end because I know WordPress is very sensitive to the backslash. You might. Try kellyma.org forward slash survey forward slash and try without, otherwise the guys will fix it in a second. Okay, on with the questions. Uh, if I've put your question aside, that's not because I don't think it's a good question, but some of them are dealing with specific cases that we want, would rather deal with in the next Rukia workshop. I'll answer them briefly, maybe in a Friday Night Reflections or in a video or something, inshallah. Uh, but, like, for example, there's a question here on a very specific kind of waswasa people have that I think we need to kind of delay until we talk about specific symptoms. And again, the person can email for a, like, sort of a, a quick reply. And then next session, we can talk in detail about, okay, disturbing thoughts and things like this. Uh, this is... Um, uh, I'll just summarize it. I'm, I'm apologize, but I'm just going to, you know, sort of summarize it best I can. Um, this question is regarding somebody who, uh, when they recite Surah Al-Baqarah in the house, they get a bad, a very, very bad smell that lingers around, um, and uh, the person feels the Quran becoming heavy, heavy in their hands. Uh, there's two things or three things you need to be aware of in regard or with regard to this. Uh, the first thing you should be aware of is that the right action is to continue with the recitation of Surah Al-Baqarah in the home. If once a week, twice a week is not working, then once a day. If once a day is still not working, then twice a day. You know, you need to up it up, uh, turn, turn up the intensity, inshallah. The second thing is that the jinn have two smells that I commonly associate with the jinn. One is a very foul smell, like a smell of waste and a smell of decay. Uh, and that smell often is kind of other from the jinn. It's like they're causing you a problem. It's not their smell, but they're like trying to, you know, like they throw sort of feces or excrement, like to make the house smell really bad. Surat al-Baqarah will, inshallah, fix that, as will keeping the house clean and pure as we're praying in the house and all of the things we said about correcting the house and making the house a place which is beloved to Allah Azza wa Jal. But also, I want to emphasize in that question the importance of doing ruqya on the individual who is having the problem as well. Because when the Quran is feeling heavy in your hands, this is a symptom that the jinn are afflicting you in yourself and not just your home. So be careful with home afflictions. A lot of people make the mistake with the home affliction of thinking that the problem is only... Uh, within the home and then they do al-Baqarah but they're not also doing Rukia for themselves as well so we'd also recommend at least the 7 day program probably the full Rukia program for them and don't, don't forget that it's not just al-Baqarah in the house as well it's also praying in the house keeping the house clean and tidy uh, keeping in a state of wudu making the house a place where Quran is playing all the time and so on and so forth and hopefully with this the, uh, the bad smells will go away the other smell that's more commonly associated with the jinn naturally is a really weird smell and it's kind of almost like copper not like like a like a, a really kind of like 
like acidic or a really kind of um, sort of acrid kind of very strange smell. Uh, I don't know, like it's it's a really weird. Uh, it's very hard unless you've smelt it before. It's hard to explain, but it's kind of like a metallic kind of smell, uh, and it's it's very um, it's very strong and quite like a quite a like an acidic kind of smell. That seems to be a more natural smell that you tend to get around the gin. Uh, sometimes I've come across that before. And uh, also the third issue of smell you get is people personally smelling really bad when they are afflicted by the gin. This can also happen. Um, it's easier with men because you can apply perfume that the gin dislike, like misc and uh, you know things like this. Um, also those blocks of of perfume, you get those soapy blocks of like red misc. They also, you know, when you apply them, they also work quite well for that. Uh, but the problem also with the ladies is that they can't go out with the perfume on. So that can be sometimes a little bit problematic. Uh, again, maybe uh, the olive oil would be a decent uh, substitute, putting the olive oil on in the place where the smell seems to be coming from and taking a regular rukia bath uh, and, uh, you know, maybe sort of the other things we can add to in sort of a rukia program. So those are three issues with regard to smell. A foul smell like excrement and waste, that one usually is the gin causing you harm. They're trying to sort of annoy you. Get rid of that by purifying the house and purifying yourself, and don't forget to do rukia on yourself. Uh, the kind of sort of metallic type of smell that is associated with the gin, that tends to be more of a natural thing. Um, and likewise the smell, bad smell coming from a person's body. Uh, and again, be careful what you're eating as well. That can, that can affect, uh, that can make the matters worse. But also uh, sort of uh, perfume uh, that the gin dislike, like misc and things like that. And likewise, uh, maybe applying the olive oil and the rukia bath would also help. Can rukia be done by uh, distance? I think we've more or less dealt with that question and said that it it's not proper rukia. Uh, proper rukia is done on the breath when you're present. However, if you don't have any other option other than that, then I hope that like rukia audio, inshallah, it will serve a purpose for a time. It will serve a purpose for a time. And I've known people who've done it over distance. And uh, alhamdulillah, you know, it, it has been, it has made a positive impact. But I wouldn't advise that you do it when you have another option, inshallah. Self-rukia is the way to go. Rukia in the family, and if you know you need some distance rukia, I would say it fills the same role as rukia audio. It's not proper rukia, but it you know it serves a purpose. If a person who has given the evil eye to another person has died, what is the course of action to remove the evil eye? The seven-day program is very very good for that. I think the seven-day program is more than adequate. Uh, to get rid of the evil eye. Otherwise, you'd have to go to the full Rukia program. Okay. So, uh, the first person asking about, you know, I've taken a ta'weed in the past, and uh, I, I regret doing so. I've, I've repented to Allah, but I just threw it away. This is a really common question. I've just thrown my ta'weed away. Did I do the right thing? And if so, you know, what should I be doing? Uh, at the end of the day, you did the best you could under the circumstances. Throwing a ta'weed away is not the ideal way of disposing of one. It's not the way I would recommend you to dispose of one. However, uh, it's not, 
at the end of the day, you did the best you could under what, with, with what knowledge you had available to you at the time. Repent to Allah, make lots of dua, try to be active in warning other people against ta'weez, in getting rid of ta'weez that other people have. And I hope, inshallah, that this will more than make up for the circumstances, inshallah, that you have found yourself in. It's not the ideal way. We wouldn't advise someone just to throw it away. You've got to dispose of it properly. However, if you threw it away, we hope that Allah will suffice you against it. Remember, the Prophet's magic was done through a very special kind of ta'weez called mishtun wa mishata, which is a comb split into 11 segments tied with knots of hair around it. And the Prophet ﷺ did not get hold of it and destroy it. He said, as for me, Allah has cured me from it, i.e. with al-falaq and al-nas. And therefore, I do not need to take it out. He commanded the well be filled up so that the ta'weed would not harm the people. And that shows you that ta'weed are toxic. Because the Prophet ﷺ feared the ta'weed that had, he had been cured from would cause harm to the people of Medina if they were to take it out. So he ordered the well to be filled in and covered over, and he never took it out and broke it. So that is an evidence that it's still, you know, you can break a ta'weed through Quran, you can break a ta'weed through Ruqya, uh, and at the end of the day, they are dangerous. We don't just throw them away, but if you did it, at the end of the day, we hope that with tawbah, turning to Allah, as for the question, will Allah forgive me? There's nothing that Allah won't forgive you from if you ask. Is it valid to do Ruqya for a sleeping child? Uh, in general, I was always taught, try not to let the Rukia patient sleep. But what I would say about this with regard to the sleeping child is I would actually say that it depends on the ailment. If that you're giving Rukia just to help the child to relax, maybe the child's had trouble sleeping and they've gone off to sleep, there's no need for you to wake them up for that. You know, if, if your child's screaming at night, You've done Rukia, they've gone off to sleep, you want to finish your Rukia 45 minutes or your half an hour. There's no need for you to, uh, to wake them up for that. However, with a, a serious Rukia case where there's a gin involved and a reaction, I was always taught and I've always applied that, that don't let them go to sleep if you can. The way to wake them up generally is the blocks of misc. It's really good. Uh, you get these blocks, they're very common in India and Pakistan. They're like blocks of soapy misc. They're red color or orange color, little block about one inch by one inch or so. Um, very cheap, they smell quite strongly of misc. They rub off like kind of waxy soap type things. And I never know what they call them. I don't know what they call them in any language. I mean, I just call them blocks of misc. Uh, but basically they look like kind of red or yellowy color blocks of soap and they have a quite strong smell of misc. Take a little flake off shove it up the nostril. Khalas. They will not sleep after that. They will not sleep. Other alternative, water spray can that you would spray your you know, car with, car window with, or flower pot with, and uh, just spray zamzam rukia water in their face. That also works well. That also works when the jinn is grabbing the throat and they open the mouth. So if the jinn is grabbing the throat and they go just straight in the mouth and that will also wake them up but really these blocks of misc are even better than smelling salts even better they, they, smelling salts smell horrible as well so these are much better they smell lovely and you just wave it under their nose and they 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 wake up almost straight away
but as I said, for a, for a child who is maybe just got a tummy pain, not feeling very well, you don't need to wake them up for that. You should let them sleep, have mercy, and let them sleep, inshallah, and just carry on doing a little bit of rukia, blow on them, hold the hand on the place of pain. But if you've got a real jinn that's running around, don't let the jinn put the person to sleep. I once had a case. Sorry, I know these stories always start with I once had a case. I once had a case uh, where I thought I killed a woman. It was my first levitation and the first time I thought that I killed somebody. Uh, this woman was levitating. Levitating is not as impressive as it sounds. Um, she was levitating in the sense that she wasn't touching any part of the floor or the sofa. She was raised like this as if someone had, a, had their hand under her back and they were lifting her up. She wasn't on the ceiling. She was about maybe an inch off the sofa. Her head, you could have put your hand underneath, you know, there was, there was air, there was no, she wasn't touching anything. At least I couldn't see that she was touching anything. She might have been, I couldn't see she was touching anything. She was sort of in an in a upside down V shape, like a, a mountain sort of pyramid shape, like from the back bent over. And her two brothers, one was sitting on her chest and one was sitting on her leg and she was still pushing them up. That wasn't the strange part. Uh, the strange part was I thought I killed her. I read on her for a long time and she just went mm. and that was it. Nothing. You know, we poured water on her, no movement at all, nothing. You know, there was no eye movement. We thought she wasn't breathing. Uh, you know, the brother was looking for a pulse. We thought really we killed her. You know, she was totally unresponsive. Um, the brother, you know, gave her a slap, pinched her, poured water over her, nothing totally just dead and what we think happened and we don't know is that the jinn might have died inside of her while she was possessed and we don't know that's true but some of the Rakis who have more experience in this said this might have happened and she became like dead but like like just frozen you know like nothing I've ever seen I've seen people faint this is not fainting she was just dead you know, I think, alhamdulillah, the heart, we established the heart is beating, but we, you know, like, they were, she was dead. So, subhanAllah, in the end, the time went on for hours and hours and nothing happened. In the end, I said, look, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to go, you know, I'm going to have to, this is like middle of the night now. You know, we're just going to have to keep an eye on her. She's breathing and we're just going to have to, you know, like, just keep reading. And so the brother said, no, no, it's okay. You just keep reading. I'll call you if I need you and everything. And alhamdulillah, within about, I think, maybe four, six hours, she, she came back around. But we really thought, I really thought, she, I really thought I killed her, honestly. Allah understand. Can a 12-year-old boy recite upon his father under the mother's supervision? They both have a reading, a reading uh, dyslexia. This is in support instead of an audio recording. Uh, the mother can recite also. The mother can recite and the boy can recite. But, you know, be careful with young kids. Uh, don't try to burden them with too much when they're too young also. You know, like, uh, I keep, my kids are aware of Rukia. They are kind of aware of the jinn. They, you know, they get weird things happen in the house sometimes. They're not so, you know, they're quite good with dealing with them. But I wouldn't sort of ask my 10-year-old or, you know, to sort of do Rukia um, unless there was a real need because I just think it's putting a burden on the child that maybe they don't, they don't, they don't need yet. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ did not used to accept uh, people volunteer for the army in jihad unless they were adults. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we would say the same qiyas for Rukia. Uh, if the mother recites, it's better, inshallah.
Okay, so someone's saying doesn't like to get close to their husband. Whenever he's away, they want to be with him. Whenever he comes in the room, they feel an aversion to him. That's classic symptoms of magic. Doesn't have to be, but it is classic symptoms of magic. A lot of love when the husband and wife are away. As soon as he comes in the room, there's a, almost like a magnetic repulsion between the two, and the person needs to go through the steps. Where do I start? Rukia program and all of the rest, inshallah. Uh, can a person drift from the right path, die in a state of disbelief, uh, and are they answerable for their deeds if this is because of magic? I think also we've pretty much answered this. We've said that often the person's deeds are, the person is partially responsible. We hope that this is from the magic, and we hope that Allah will forgive them, but we can't say for certain. And we should always try to stop a person before, while they're going down that slippery slope, do whatever we can to stop them going into that slippery slope uh, and not use magic as an excuse for our own problems also. If someone asks me to check if they have magic or evil eye, how can I do that and with what ayat? I recommend you just tell them to do the seven-day program. There are ways, but again, you know, don't waste your time with, you know, check if I have magic or evil eye. And tell me your symptoms. If you don't have any symptoms, then, you know, just do the seven-day program and inshallah that will be fine. That's what I tell everybody. And some of you may have come to me and I've said the same thing to you. Go do the seven-day program, come back and tell me how you felt. You know, don't, don't waste your time with these diagnosis, ayat, this and that and the other. Don't rush. You make a diagnosis too quickly, it, it, you get the wrong, the wrong thing happens. What is the minimum condition to be a raqi or to perform ruqya? Is it necessary to be a hafid? Can it be recited from the mushaf? I think also I've pretty much answered that question, I feel. Uh, when I said the issue, the question, what if I can't read the Qur'an well, you should still recite. You can still be Iraqi if your tajweed is not great, if you're not hafid of the Qur'an. But obviously, the better your tajweed is, the better your hifth is. The only problem reading from the Mus'haf is really that when you read from the Mus'haf and the jinn is going mad, you've got like a violent jinn, um, it, it can be quite, you know, you're like trying to read Ayatul Kursi here and the jinn is, you know, whacking you with sort of feet and limbs and things like that from the other side, it's not really very practical. There is a simple solution to that. Read from the Mus'haf. When stuff gets difficult, just go to Al-Falaq and Al-Nas or Ayat Al-Kursi that you know by Hifth because when it's, when it's difficult, you can't really pin someone down with a Mus'haf in one hand and, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really work. And I'm always reluctant to do it with my phone in case they throw my phone against the wall or something and I will have to get a new one. But no, the conditions I've mentioned in the previous video, if you go to the Raqi and his family, which is video number eight, I think, in the 10 video series, I've mentioned the conditions for being a Raqi there. Are there any chances of a jinn? Now, I'll mention something actually on that topic very briefly. Uh, I think, let's just, let me just flick this, flick this to tell me how long I have. Fourteen minutes, so not a great length of time. Okay, with regard to people who have been a bit inspired by this course and say, right, we want to be volunteers. My answer to you is, show me that you want to be volunteers. Email that, Muhammad, I want to be a volunteer. I want to do rukia for people. You know, jazakallahu khairan. But that, for me, it doesn't mean anything. What I want to do is see. 
You come to me and say, I've read on my family member, I've read on this person, I've now read on four people, five people, ten people, and you keep coming, then inshallah, definitely I will say, right, this person is a, is a good volunteer, this person is someone that I really am going to give some time to, and we're going to go through some detailed ruqya together, I've got no problem. But I want to see more than just, you know, raghba, more than just a, a, a basic desire in the heart, actual someone going out there, trying, reciting over people, uh, you know, learning about it, reading about it, and coming with intelligent questions, you know, that show that the person's read. You said in this video, then you contradicted yourself in this video. And I want to know which one is right. You know, those kind of questions, they, they make me happy because it shows the person's really, you know, really going through things in detail and really trying to understand. So I've got no problem sort of supporting people to do Rukia, um, giving people additional priority support and stuff like that, no issue. But I want to see an action, not, a, not, a, not just a Rukia. Because too many people after the course, they're like, yeah, all right, all of us, we wanna, we're going to do Rukia. And this is our you know, thing now. We're all going to become Rukia, Bismillah, find me a case. But you, know, you see them after two weeks and it's like I'm too busy. So I won't put the investment in unless they do. If someone puts the investment in, I'll put equal or more to what they put in, inshallah. Is there a chance of a jinn to pass from one person to another, like mother to daughter? It's a lot more rare than you would think. Can I say to you it never happens? No, I'm not going to say to you. It would be wrong for me to say to you it will never, ever happen, but very, very rare. Do not believe these stories of jinn hopping where... The jinn just hops one person and hops to the Raqi, hops to the Raqi's son, hops to the Raqi's wife. And he, this doesn't happen. I'm sorry, it doesn't happen. Very, you know, nadir, almost never I've heard of this happening. Is it possible for a Raqi to pick up an affliction because of doing Rukia? Yeah, I think that's quite possible. Because at the end of the day, if you're a tandoori chef, you probably burn your fingers quite a lot. You know, and I think that if you're a Raqi, you probably get afflicted by the jinn. You know, some pains, some problems, some, you know, like evil eye-like symptoms. Maybe a couple of times I had a jinn follow me around. I had some possession symptoms. Uh, one time, one of them said he came to learn how to do rukia, which was... Jazakallah khair, have you watched the video? <laughs> you don't have to follow me home, you know. Uh, one of them said he came to learn rukia, and... Uh, he said his name was Sheikh something, and you know, and that was that. And uh, a few times I had a few magicians try, you know, try a few things, but very mild, very minor, nothing major, no big issues, alhamdulillah, in the family, no jumping one to another. Very rare. I can't say to you never, but you know, tie your camel, do your, do your protection, do ours, and don't worry about these jinn jumping. Mother to daughter in the womb is a different thing. Mother to daughter in the womb, this is, needs research. Because there is some evidence that the jinn, that magic can be passed on in the womb. But this is really like an area of research I have not looked into. It's really an area, there are some areas of Rukia that have not been very well or very, you know, a lot of in-depth. There is some anecdotal evidence that I've seen, you know, somewhat that seems to suggest perhaps a magic affliction can uh, afflict, afflict a baby in the womb. Is it past then? Is it part of the magician's contract? There's a lot of issues to look into that. But generally, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be too worried about gin jumping. Um, I've seen somebody whose prayer is quite lengthy and unusual. To the extent that the person watching it gets apprehensive. 
Does that mean something is wrong with the person? Can a person be afflicted when they pray? A person can be afflicted when they pray. And if you have any concerns, generally we say seven-day program to start with. Just clear them out, make sure it's nothing, nothing big. Maybe an issue of riyah, maybe an issue of, of evil eye, could be anything. So just take the seven-day program and take it slowly, inshallah, just as we said. What precaution should I take as a mother when visiting an aunt when I know who I know is possessed with a jinn? Uh, exactly what we've spoken about. The, exactly the article, how do I protect myself? That is, that's my simple answer. You know, go through the tawheed, sunnah, taqwa, prayer, adhkar, dhikr, dates, all these things that we went through. You know, that's pretty much what I would give you. Protecting your children, there is a dua for protecting your children from the shaitan. أُعِيذُكَ بِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ التَّامَّةِ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْطَانٍ وَهَامَّةِ وَمِنْ كُلِّ عَيْنٍ لَامَّةِ For a boy, it's أُعِيذُكَ For a girl, أُعِيذُكِ And obviously for a group, أُعِيذُكُمْ أُعِيذُكَ بِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ التَّامَّةِ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْطَانٍ وَهَامَّةِ وَمِنْ كُلِّ عَيْنٍ لَامَّةِ Gets you away from shaitan. Uh, gets you away from animals and being attacked, the child being attacked by anything like uh, beasts or creatures, and likewise gets you away from the evil eye. And the Prophet used to read this for Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein, and you can find it on duas.com, D-U-A-S.com. Is it important to know if it is Ayn or possession or magic? I, I sort of alluded to this in the beginning when I said right now it's not important. For you right now, at this point, in this stage in your learning, it really isn't important. People give far too much importance to it. It's far too complicated. It will come with experience, and mostly it's a matter of specializing your ruqya later on. Right now in the beginning, Fatiha, Al-Falaq, Al-Nas, that's gonna be your bread and butter ruqya no matter what the problem is. And you know, I, I sometimes you know, sort of have a little bit of a dig and say to people, you know, what are you gonna do? If it's Ayn, what are you gonna do? You're gonna read Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq. Okay, if it's Sihar, what are you gonna do? Read Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq. Taib, if it's medical, what are you gonna do? Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq. Taib, then there's not a massive need to worry too much about what it is in the beginning. As you develop knowledge, slowly you will develop an idea of when it is sihr, when it is ayn, when it is jinn possession. I've spoken about some of the symptoms for each in my videos. And likewise, I've said to you that I judge it more on symptoms than on, more on case, the case history than I do on the, the rukia reaction. Rukia reaction can be very similar. What you're gonna do if someone has magic and ayn? You know, to be honest, the rukia reaction is gonna be very similar. But the case history is where it really becomes clear. And it says, you know, wife and husband repelled, they love each other when they're apart, when they're together. Straight away in your mind, you're thinking magic. Why? Because Allah said, Straight away you're thinking married, love each other when they're apart, hate each other when they're together. Did I, can I confirm it's magic sitting here? Of course not. But that gives me a good working theory. Where do we keep our working theory? In here, not on here, yeah? In the mind, not on the tongue. Working theory, go for it, see what happens, adapt your ruqya and specialize it as you become more knowledgeable. You said don't burn incense. No problem burning incense for incense sake, but don't burn incense to get rid of the jinn. That's what I said. Incense for incense sake, no problem. Bukhur is lovely, burn it all you like. But don't burn incense for the sake of pushing away the jinn or bringing the jinn because it's far too close to what the magicians do. If someone sees a black snake on a fence in a jinn or in a dream, 
is there any benefit to go looking at that fence? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, the black snake, yes, we can say snakes associated with the jinn, black snake, you know, associated with the shaitan, the black snake with the, the white marks on the top, definitely clear association with the shaitan, clear association with magic. Does that mean the person is affected, guaranteed, or whatever? No, I think that at the end of the day, uh, realistically, it's something to take precaution for, to start treatment. As we said, always jump the gun, you know, start the treatment early, get the seven-day program in, start your 45 minutes a day, Rukia, and inshallah, you'll be fine. If you find there's no problem, just protect yourself through the article, how to protect yourself uh, with the permission of Allah How do we explain about Rukia to people who have gone to certain places um, where they do un-Islamic practices and then get cured? So this is my last, my last question, guys, for this session. I will, inshallah, take the questions and make every effort to answer them in a Friday night reflections or something similar, inshallah. Uh, this is my last question for the day. Uh, before we go for Maghrib, because I believe there's just an, maybe five minutes on my clock or less till the Adhan, so very short time, inshallah. So uh, this is a question about someone goes to say a Christian preacher, and the Christian preacher says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I cast you out, you devil, and the person says, I'm cured. How does that happen? Very simple. Very, very, very simple. Very simple. Two things. First of all, the shayateen cooperate with one another. They inspire to one another ideas and speech. So don't be surprised if the shaitan inside cooperates with the shaitan outside in order to take the person away from the path of Allah. What is the shaitan's aim? Leave Islam. You ultimately, they want you to leave Islam. So the Christian comes along and says, in the name of Lord Jesus, I ask you to leave. The, the jinn says, that's my job done. Bismillah. Out the jinn goes, and then that person becomes Christian. The second thing is that there are two ways of removing uh, the shaitan, one permissible and one impermissible. And the impermissible way is to use a shaitan that is bigger than the shaitan that is inside of them. So along comes the Baba with the big stick, and he's a bigger shaitan than the shaitan that is inside of them. And so his shaitan pulls that shaitan out of the individual. Uh, and that doesn't really cure them. But it just, again, suffices to bring them to Christianity or whatever other religion. But again, these tend not to work in the long term. And I'll say that honestly and openly before, you know, long term, they tend not to work. The person will be re-afflicted unless they keep affirming their disbelief. So someone goes and gets a ta'weev, it works for two months, and then they come back and say, it's not working, get another one, do more shirk, sacrifice an animal, slap some meat on your head, throw them, and they do, they put raw meat on their head, and then they throw it over their shoulder into the garden and all of this stuff, do it again, do it again, do it again. The cure of the Qur'an is a permanent, beautiful cure. And the cure of these things is a temporary evil cure that brings no long-term relief. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Jazakumullahu khayran wa barakallahu feekum. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.